0: with your shield lieutenant Manenka trevor had seldom felt quite so young she climbed out of the hubbard cab which had delivered her to fort Merritt, and made herself stop and stretch thoroughly she was a slender fine-boned young woman but the cramped passenger compartment of the small cab she'd been able to afford hadn't been designed to transport baggage as well as people she would made the entire flight from Nike Field to Fort Merritt with a duffel bag and footlocker piled on top of her legs. Besides, stretching out the kinks gave her an obvious reason to stand in place, gazing out over what she could see of the Merritt Reservation. The sprawling military base, named for one of the Dinochrome Brigade's fallen heroes, stretched as far as the unaided human eye could see. Most of its visible structures were low-lying, mere swells of ceramicrete rising like enormous half buried golf balls, from the surrounding tropical vegetation. There were a few exceptions. One of them, judging by the signs in front of it, was the fort's primary administration block. That particular structure was close to 30 stories tall and crowned with a bewilderingly complex clutter of communication arrays. Manenka wondered if it had been built so much taller than the base's other buildings, specifically to make the very youthful officers reporting for their first field assignments to feel even more nervous or if that had been simply an unanticipated bit of serendipity. Her mouth twitched in a wry little smile at the trend of her own thoughts, and she stopped stretching, tugged at the hem of her uniform tunic back down, and activated her baggage hand unit. The footlocker and duffel bag floated out of the cramped cab and arranged themselves in neat formation behind her on their individual counter-grab units. She'd already paid the fare, and the cab's AI called the cheerful Have a Nice Day after her, before it zipped its door shut Pivoted and went winding back down towards Nike Field. Menenka squared her shoulders and advanced along the seemingly endless Ceramicrete walkway toward the admin's imposing front entrance with her baggage tagging obediently along behind her. Mirrored armor-plast towered above her, reflecting the deep-toned blue sky and brilliant white clouds of Santa Cruz. The day was only moderately warm for early summer on Santa Cruz, but Menenka had been born and raised among craggy peaks of the planet Everest. She'd preferred a cooler, drier climate, not to mention a considerably lower atmospheric pressure. Although her brigade uniform's smart fabric maintained her body temperature in the range she'd selected, she felt sweat beating her forehead and gathering under her short, dark hair. At least Everest wasn't so far to the human-occupied norm that its citizens couldn't adjust to even the sweltering, humid sweatboxes like Santa Cruz if they had to. Eventually. At least her genetic heritage meant she tanned quickly and deeply. Of course, she admitted to herself, the climate isn't the only reason you're sweating today, now is it, Menenka? She chuckled quietly at the thought, then donned her official game face as she approached the sidearm-equipped sentry. The impeccably uniformed brigade corporal stood at a comfortable parade rest, impassively watching her approach. His presence, Menenka knew, was a complete anachronism. Far more effective security systems guarded the perimeter and buildings of Fort Merritt. And a standard computer interface would have been more efficient at greeting visitors and directing them to their appropriate destinations. Yet, the Corporal's assignment here carried with it a message that it was not lost on the shiny new lieutenant. However good the technology, however lethal and dedicated the units of the dino Brigade might be, Human Command Authority was engineered into it at every level. Ultimately, the brigade's bolos were humanity's servants. Protectors as well, yes, and trusted battle companions. But in the end, human authority must be preserved at all levels. The corporal came to attention and saluted, as Manenka stopped in front of him. She returned the salute smartly and read his nameplate as she did so. "'Good afternoon, ma'am. How may I assist the lieutenant?' "'Good afternoon, Corporal Morales.' I'm reporting for the assignment to the 39th Battalion. My orders are to report to this battalion CO's office in the admin building. I see. May I see the lieutenant's orders? Of course. Maneka handed across the chip folio containing not only her duty assignment orders, but also all of the movement orders and transportation vouchers it had taken to get her here from Sandhurst's system. Corporal Morales flipped quickly to her assignment orders and slipped the relevant chip into his waistband mini-comp, then twiddled his fingers briefly on the virtual keyboard. From her perspective, Menenka couldn't make out the details of the hollow display microcomp projected in front of Morales' eyes, but the corporal obviously found what he's looking for quickly. <clears throat> Thank you, ma'am, he said, snapping the chip out of the microcomp and restoring it to its proper storage slot, before he handed the entire folio back to Menenka. The lieutenant will find Colonel Tikovsky's office in the fifteenth floor, number 1532. Take the center grav lift, turn right at the 15th floor landing, and continue along the end of the corridor. Thank you, Corporal Morales. Could you tell me if there is some place I could check my baggage while I report in? Yes, ma'am. Press the housekeeping button on the building console. It's located to your right, just inside the entrance. Thank you, Mananka repeated, and the Corporal nodded, came back to attention, and saluted her once more. She returned the courtesy and stepped past him into the admin building. Building console was right where Morales had indicated. Menenka punched up housekeeping. How may I assist you, Lieutenant Trevor? A pleasant voice asked, speaking through Brigade transceiver surgically implanted into Menenka's left mastoid. I need to put my baggage into temporary storage while I report in. Of course. One moment, please. Menenka watched as her floating baggage twitched slightly. The building's artificial intelligence had automatically and instantly identified her from the IFF code programmed into her implanted brigade communication system. It took the computer a few more seconds to derive the proper command channel frequencies and codes from her baggage hand unit, which had been a civilian purchase, but it was more than equal to the challenge, and Manenka stood back as the footlocker and duffel went gliding smoothly away down a side passage. Your baggage will be stored pending your return, Lieutenant Trevor. Just press the recall button on your hand unit when you wish to reclaim it, the AI assured her. Do I have to return here for that? No, Lieutenant Trevor. It may take somewhat longer to write it to you, but you may recall it from any point inside the admin building. Thank you. You are most welcome, the AI replied, and Maninka walked across the lobby toward the grav lifts. She rather doubted the computer building's AI was a fully developed personality. One thing any brigade officer... Even one as shiny and new minded as she was understood was the combined expense and complexity of the advanced psychotronics which gave a bolo complete, autonomous, and functional personalities as complex as any human being. But AIs, which lacked in full personalities, carried programming which recognized and responded to courtesy. An automatic consideration for the emotions of electronic individuals was an excellent habit for a brigade officer to develop. The grav lift delivered her to the 15th floor with its customary disorienting speed and efficiency. Mindful of Morales' instructions, she turned to the right and quickly picked up the wall signage directing her towards the office of the commanding officer, 39th Battalion, Dinochrome Brigade. The sight of those words sent a sudden bright shiver through her. It was so close now, so close. She drew a deep breath, ordered herself to project an aura of calm, and walked briskly down the corridor. Colonel Everard Tarkovsky had not only discovered years ago that if he kept his computer's hollow display adjusted to exactly the right angle and height, he not only eased the strain of long hours spent in front of it imposed upon his neck, but permitted him to look directly through it at the door of his office while obviously keeping his attention focused on his routine paperwork. Now he let his eyes appear to linger on an absolutely fascinating breakdown of the most recent squabble between the central depot maintenance and the battalion's chief armor while he actually studied the young woman's Staff Sergeant Schumer had ushered into his office. The young woman in question stood at parade rest, waiting with every outward sign of patience for him to notice her arrival. She was small, he thought, no more than a hundred and fifty-five or a hundred and sixty centimeters tall, and so slender he was tempted to think of her as delicate. Her cobalt blue eyes, set in an oval face with high cheekbones. A determined-looking, high-arched nose, and slightly pouty lips made an intriguing contrast with her very dark black hair and sandalwood complexion. They had a pronounced epicantic fold, as well as those eyes, he noticed, and wondered exactly which strains of humanity's zestfully bubbling genetic stew had produced her. He quirked an index finger, touching a function key on his virtual keyboard, and the logistical report disappeared replaced by the concisely encapsulated abstract from Lieutenant Trevor's records Sergeant Schumer had prepared and uploaded for him. She graduated, 32nd out of an academy class of 1115, he noticed, top of her class in tactics, bottom third in psychotronic theory, substantially and regularly above average in all of her other courses, and ranked 14th in military history. Forty-plus standard years in the brigade had taught Everard Tchaikovsky's face, to wear whatever expression he told it to. And so he managed to avoid any dramatic widening of his eyes or pursing of his lips, nor did he want to stand to and applaud her arrival. She was certainly impressive on paper, although he had his reservations about her apparent weakness in psychotronics. But he'd seen quite a few past cadets who looked impressive on paper and never lived up to that apparent promise in the field. Lieutenant Manenka Trevor, reporting for duty, Sir! she said, snapping to full attention and saluting sharply. Her standard English had an interesting accent, which gave a throaty, almost smoky edge even to a crisp formal military phraseology, he noticed. He felt certain that a hint of soprano sensuality was both unconscious and unintentional, and he hid a mental grin as he contemplated how testosterone-challenged young bucks were likely to respond to it. Stand easy, lieutenant, he said turning her academy-sharp salute rather more casually. She dropped back into parade rest rather than full stand-easy position, her eyes gazing a regulation 15 centimeters above his head. So, you're our new Bolo commander, he said. Manenka's eyes popped wide against her will till they dropped to Colonel face. Bolo commander? Surely she must have misheard him. He simply sat there, gazing back at her with a mildly speculative expression. And she fought an urge to lick her lips nervously as she realized he was preparing to go right on doing it until she said something. Sir, my orders report to Fort Merritt for duty with the 39th Battalion. Exactly what those duties were wasn't specified. However, I was certainly never anticipated that someone as junior and inexperienced as myself might be considered for assignment as a commander. So, you think you're not up for the job, then? Tchaikovsky let a deliberate edge of challenging coolness in his voice, but the young woman's composure remained unruffled. Yes, sir, I believe I'm up to the job. I believe my academy record demonstrates that I have the training and the native ability to command a bolo in combat. I am also, however, as I said, very junior and aware of my inexperience. I'd anticipated an assignment to an additional training with hands on experience under the tutelage of a fully qualified and experienced unit commander. At least that's what I was led to expect by my instructors at the academy. I see. Tchaikovsky cocked back in his chair, propped his elbow on the chair arms, and steepled his fingers in front of his chest. He considered her coolly for several seconds, then allowed the first millimetric hint of a smile to show. Not a bad answer, Lieutenant and I'm sure that's exactly what the Academy type told you to expect. But, truth is, the Brigade has experienced some changes just now. Menenka's eyes darkened. She knew exactly to what he was referring to. The Melconian Empire isn't as technologically advanced as the Concordiat, Or, at least not in most areas. They do remarkably well in electronic warfare and stealth capabilities, but they're far, far behind us in cybernetics and they've demonstrated no equivalent to our own psychotronic technology. Unfortunately, the Empire is also much larger than the Concordiat. We knew that. What I strongly suspect none of our analysts considered was that we might be underestimating how much larger it might be. And now that we're busy killing each other in planet-sized lots, that particular question takes on a certain burning relevance. He looked at her levelly, and neither of them needed for him to be more specific. The current war against the Malconian Empire had begun in 3343, the same year Menenka was born. Everyone had seen it coming. No one had even begun to imagine how terrible it would be once it began. The sheer stupendous size of the Empire had taken the Concordiats' so-called intelligence experts completely by surprise. On the other hand, the Concordiats' technological superiority must have come just as a great a surprise to the Malconians, The initial naval engagements had gone overwhelmingly in humanity's favor until, at least, the puppies had mobilized their real battle fleet. After that, things had gotten progressively uglier. Six years ago, after 15 years of increasingly bloody warfare, the Malconians had carried out what the Emperor had been pleased to call a demonstration strike on the planet of New Vermont. None of the planet's billion inhabitants had survived. The Concordia's inevitable retaliatory strike on the Malconian planet of Tharnas had been equally effective. But instead of inspiring the Malconians to renounce its genocidal attacks, the Tharnas strike had become simply the first human contribution to an ever-upward spiraling cycle of murderous violence. By now, under the grimly appropriate plan Ragnarok, the extermination of the Malconian ability to ever wage war again which everyone knew, whether they would admit it or not, meant the effective extermination of the Malconian species had become the official policy of the Concordiat. as, self-evidently, the extermination of humanity had become the reciprocal policy of the Malconian Empire. For Manenka, at this point, that was still an intellectual awareness. For Tychofsky, it wasn't. Manenka was aware, though she really wasn't supposed to be, that last post before giving the 39th had been the executive officer of the 721st, which had taken 66% casualties at the Battle of Maybach. It's obvious that we have a significant advantage in combat power on a ton-for-ton basis. Their warships need a 3-to-1 advantage to meet us in an even footing, and the differential is even worse for their planetary heavy combat units going up against modern BOLOs. The problem is that they appear to have this numerical advantage and probably quite a good bit to spare. I take it you're already aware of most of this? Yes, sir, she said quietly. Then you realize the brigade is going to take heavy casualties in this war. In addition, we're expanding our strength at the highest rate in the brigade's history. That, of course, is why your academy curriculum was shortened by a full semester and why your graduating class was 20% larger than the one before it and 20 percent smaller than the one behind it despite how difficult it is to find officer candidates capable of passing brigade screening it's also why the 39th has been systematically rated for experienced commanders we're running at a full stretch and beyond frankly to keep up with combat losses and simultaneously crew the new build bolos so while i prefer to assign you to an experienced commander in the traditional mentor relationship it simply isn't practical in fact Of the 39th's 12 BOLO commanders, only three, including myself, have seen actual combat. You'll be our youngest and most junior commander. I'm giving you 862BNJ. Benji as your BOLO. He's been around the block more than a few times, Lieutenant. You can learn a lot from him, just as you'd better be learning from everyone else around you. I'm sure you and your classmates at the Academy worked on math of your odds surviving to retire assuming anyone is allowed to retire in the foreseeable future of course. If you did the math then you know your odds aren't especially encouraging. Recognizing that will probably contribute to a realistic perspective but don't fixate on it. That sort of thing can create a self-fulfilling prophecy situation. Instead remember this lieutenant every single thing you can learn here, every trick you can pick up, every tactical insight, every speck of deviousness you can acquire will probably shift the probabilities in your favor. It will also make you a more effective commander, more dangerous to the enemy, and for right now, that's your entire responsibility. To learn. To learn how to survive, how to meet the enemy, how to defeat him. A Mark 28 Bolo like Benji is too long in the tooth for frontline deployment in a war like this. He's been around for one and a quarter standard centuries. Over 125 years, Lieutenant. He's picked up quite a few tricks in that time learn from him. Yes, sir, I'll try. Don't try, Lieutenant. Do. He held her eyes for another few moments, then nodded briskly. Very well, Lieutenant Trevor. Welcome to the 39th. He stood and shook her hand briefly but firmly. Then he nodded his head at the door. Sergeant Schumer, we'll have your formal ordered ship assigning you to Benji. Major Frederick's set on maneuvers at the moment, so the sergeant will probably turn you over to Sergeant Tobias. He's your company's senior bolo tech. That makes him the best man to you to Benji. Anyway, good luck, Lieutenant. He straightened up, and she came back to attention and saluted. He returned it. Dismissed, Lieutenant. You ever met a Mark 28, ma'am? Sergeant Elf Tobias asked respectfully as he and Menenka walked across the company parade ground toward the looming mountain of weapons and alloy which awaited them. On active duty? Only once. I did work with a couple of retired Mark 28 AIs at the academy, though. Oh, you did. That's good, ma'am. I know the 28s aren't exactly first line equipment anymore, but I always thought they had, I don't know, more personality. Maybe than the newer Marks. But of course, just because they've been around so much longer, I suppose. Lots of time to develop personality quirks in a century or two. Well, I imagine so. Menenka agreed, remembering the staff Bolo AI retired from their war and assigned to the academy to interact with its students. One in particular, 28B163HRP, had a delightfully acerbic personality which made her cognomen of Harpy a perfect fit. Manenka doubted she would ever forget the afternoon Harpy had spent critiquing one cadet Trevor's less-than-brilliant solution to a tactical problem as she smiled as she looked back at the sergeant. Personally, I'm glad the Brigade started retiring and upgrading software instead of just burning out the Personality Sensor Sergeant." "'You and me both, ma'am,' Tobias agreed in turn, giving her a look which held a hint of approval. never did seem fair to just throw them away after they got too old. Of course, the older models, before the Mark 24s and 25s, probably had too many inhibitory features to make upgrading their AIs to the new marks practical. They weren't really designed to be upgraded in the first place." Oh, I know. Mineka started to say something more, then changed her mind as the two stepped into the shadow of the looming Bolo. She half expected Tobias to immediately introduce her to the huge combat machine, but the sergeant waited patiently for her to absorb its full impact first. Unit 28 Golf 862 Bravo November Juliet was a 15,000 ton Mark 28 Model G Bolo, one of the old triumphants. His hull measured 87 meters from his much-decorated prow to his aftermost anti-personnel clusters, and his point-defense cannons. His bogey wheels were almost 6 meters in diameter, his tracks were 8 meters wide, and at the top of his center-mounted main battery turret rose 27 meters above the ground. Yet he was so broad and long, he still seemed low-slung, almost sleek. His indirect fire system was divided with his four 30-centimeter rapid-fire breech-loading mortars mounted forward of his turret and the 24 cells of his VLS missile system mounted behind it. The secondary weapons of his infinite repeaters bristled in a lozenge pattern around the central turret and eight 10-centimeter bolt rifles and four twin turrets on either flank, with a pair of single turrets mounted on the center line fore and after the main turret. The broadside turrets were all echelon to at least allow five infinite repeaters to engage any target bearing, well, the ion bolt armament was far less powerful than the small bore hellbores mounted on secondary weapons aboard current model bolos. Menenka knew the 10 centimeter version mounted on the Mark 28 would penetrate better than a quarter meter of Dura alloy at close ranges. And if the 110 centimeter hellbore of BNJ's main armament was much lighter than the current generation 200 centimeter weapons, it could still pump out 2.75 megatons a second. BNJ's glassiest glittered with the welded-on battle honors of over well over a century of active service. Menenka recognized perhaps half of the campaign ribbons, including awards for several of the Zolontes campaign and the Deng War campaigns. She felt embarrassed at not recognizing the others, and made a mental note to look them up as soon as possible. But she failed to recognize some of those. The awards were for valor, were another matter entirely. She ran her eyes down the long, glittering row of platinum and rhodium stars, and tried not to show her reaction to the discovery that B.N.J. had received no less than three galactic clusters. There were probably at least some equally or even more highly decorated BOLOs still in service, but there couldn't have been that many. And yet, for all the Mark 28's undoubted firepower and all of B.N.J.'s proven lethality and courage, Colonel Tchaikovsky and Sergeant Tobias were right. B.N.J. and his brothers and sisters were no longer fit for combat against first-line enemy opposition. At the academy, Manenka had studied everything she could get her hands on about the Malconian Empire's ground combat systems, and she knew the human advantage in psychotronics and artificial intelligence generally gave even older bolos like BNJ an enormous edge in any one-on-one confrontation with the puppy's manned armoured units. The Malconian heavy combat mechs, the Surturs as the Concordia had codenamed them, had heavy AI support, but the AIs in question were far less capable required command inputs at almost every stage. They were roughly equivalent to the old Mark 20, or possibly an old Mark 19, but with far more powerful weapons than even those ancient bows had mounted. Fast, lethal, and capable as long as they operated within the pre-planned canned battle plans, but much slower than any current inventory bolo when faced with tactical situations outside their pre-programmed plans. But if their cybernetics were vastly inferior to the Concordia's psychotronic-based systems, they were also less massive, and the Malconians had accepted the use of antimatter reactors rather than the bulkier cold fusion plants humanity employed. The result was an 18,000-ton fighting machine with two echeloned main turrets, each mounting the Malconian equivalent of three 81-centimeter hellboards The turret arrangement meant that each turret masked the others' fire over an arc of about 25 degrees. But that still meant all six hellboards could be brought to bear on a single target over a 310 degree field of fire. That much main battery armament meant that the Surtur's secondary armament was inevitably much lighter than current generation Bolo's mounted, although it was heavier than that of an older model like BNJ, and the Surtur came in two distinct variants, one standard and one support. The support model, which suppressed secondary armament almost entirely in favor of indirect fire capability, at least 25 percent heavier than BNJs, the Sertor's stablemate, the Medium Mech, the Concordia had codenamed Garm, weighed in at barely 9,000 tons and was hopelessly outclassed against any bolo. But the Malconians operated their armored forces in tactical units called fists, each combined one Sertor with two of the Garms, with the lighter Garms to probe ahead and provide flanking units under the command of the Sertor's tight tactical control. A Malconian fist. Was probably the most dangerous foe a unit of the Dinochrome Brigade had faced in centuries. And there were a lot of fists out there, which was one reason the Academy was now graduating two classes a year instead of one. As those thoughts flashed past her, BNJ's forward main optical head unhoused itself and swiveled around to face her. She felt particularly bug like as the Mammoth Bolo regarded her with every appearance of watchful thoughtfulness. And her mouth wanted to twitch into a smile as she thought of how ridiculous she must look standing next to in front of him with the top of her head barely reaching a quarter of the way up one of his bogey wheels benji sergeant schumer said after a moment this is lieutenant trevor the introduction menenka knew was purely a formality benji had undoubtedly scanned her implant iff the instant she crossed his defensive perimeter zone but over the centuries the brigade had evolved an ironbound tradition of proper protocol and courtesy I am pleased to meet you, Lieutenant, a resident baritone said pleasantly over the bowl of external speakers. Thank you. The Lieutenant's being assigned to you as your new commander, Benji. Command authentication. The Bluebirds sing in the spring. Authentication accepted. A red light blinked on the optical head, and then the baritone voice spoke again, this time directly to Menenka. Unit 28 golf 862 baker Baker-November-Juliet of the line awaiting orders, Commander. Thank you, Benji. Menenka fought almost successfully to keep the tremors out of her voice. As for the first time, one of the stupendous, awe-inspiring war machines she had trained for almost eight standard years to command acknowledged her authority. She had never expected this moment to come so early in her career, even with the war's intensity growing steadily to fresh heights of violence, and she inhaled deeply as she savored it. You'll have to give Benji's head a bit more, Lieutenant. Major Angela Frederick said over Menenka's mastoid transceiver from her command couch, aboard Unit 28D-302-PGY. Her voice wasn't precisely unpleasant, but it most definitely was pointed. Don't second-guess him. You don't have the experience for that yet. Yes, ma'am. Menenka kept her tone steady, but her cheeks burned with embarrassment. Damn it. She knew Benji's battle comp had a better grasp of any tactical situation than her own merely mortal perceptions and brain could match. And God knew that everyone knew no human being could possibly match the speed with which a Bolo thought and responded. Yet, even knowing all of that, she had found herself issuing orders when her own situational awareness was, obviously, at least several seconds behind the decision-making curve. And Fredericks and Peggy had handed them... her... their heads. It's a common beginner's mistake, Lieutenant, Fredericks said in a slightly gentler tone. Once our own adrenaline gets engaged, we all forget how much faster Bolos think trust me even commanders with years of experience do it sometimes but it's something the newbies have to watch even more closely do that frederick responded and this time there was an actual suspicion of a chuckle in her voice of course if you manage to never actually let that happen again you'll have accomplished something absolutely unique in the brigade's history frederick's out vanenka's face felt hotter than ever and she was devoutly grateful to the Major for having officially terminated the conversation before she had to figure out how to respond to that last remark. She lay back in the incredibly comfortable command couch in the center of Benji's command deck while Frederick's comments sank in. She was perched directly atop the Bolo's personality center, her fragile flesh and his psychotronic brain both protected at the core of his war hull, along with his power plant. It required a direct hit with a very heavy caliber hellbore to penetrate this deep, and protected by Benji's battle screen, anti-radiation fields, and Dura-alloy armor over two meters thick across his glacius, Manenka could ride safely through the fringes of a nuclear blast, none of which offered her the least protection against her company CEO's critique. Actually, she thought, I almost wish the Major had ripped a strip off my hide. That, I'd have to be patient with the squeaky new kid on the block tone, is even more devastating. She watched Benji's tactical plot as he and the other three bolos of third company rumbled majestically back from the training ground. Bolos left big footprints, and the several thousand square kilometers of Fort Merritt reservation, which had been set aside for training maneuvers, had been hammered into a fairly close approximation of hell. Not that bolos particularly minded grinding through mud and a couple meters thick over the stubble of what had been once jungle trees 40 or 50 meters in height. And Menenka had already discovered that her academy instructors had been completely correct when they assured her that even the best straight simulation wasn't quite the same thing as a live fire exercise. She closed her eyes, savoring the memory despite her embarrassment at the way she had flubbed the final part of the maneuver exercise. Moving Benji to the firing range and feeling that 15,000 ton hull buck as she watched the incredible flashing speed and precision with which his thundering weapons had ripped apart the ground targets and wildly evading aerial target drones had been incredible. It irritated her to realize she was reusing the same adverb, but she could literally think of no better one than just incredible. In that moment, she had truly realized for the first time, on an emotional level, not just an intellectual one, that she literally was in command of more firepower than any pre-space army of Old Earth had ever deployed in a single battle. Probably more than any pre-space nation had ever deployed in a single war, and Benji, was only one of 12 Mark 28s in the 39th Battalion. As Major Frederick said, it is difficult for even experienced Bolo commanders to avoid occasional such errors, Menenka, Benji replied through the bulkhead speaker. It is unfortunately true that human perceptions and chemical-based thought processes find it impossible to process information as rapidly as a Bolo is capable of processing it. I know, and I know we can't multitask the way you can, but it's just so hard to sit here while you do all the work. The speaker rumbled with Benji's electronic chuckle, and she cocked a questioning eyebrow at the visual pickups centered above the tactical plot, a long tradition, the equivalent of looking the bolo in the eye. Menenka, you are the 27th commander who has been assigned to me in my career, and every one of you have found it difficult to just sit there. The brigade does not choose its commanders casually, and it is the very command mentality for which it selects which makes it difficult for you to refrain from exercising command. Maneka considered that for a moment, it made sense she supposed, given the qualities the brigade wanted in its commanders, and yet it re-emphasized a question which had always bothered her. You know, Benji, I've always wondered for a long time why we continue to assign commanders to each bolo at all, I mean the Major's right, and so are you, no human can possibly think and react as quickly as you can, so why put a human in the loop at this level at all? The bolo did not reply for a second or two. That was an incredibly long time for any Bolo to ponder a question or problem, and Manenka wondered for a moment if he was going to respond at all. That question is properly one you ought to ask of the battalion's human command personnel, Benji said finally. I know, and I've asked it several times at the academy, but I was never really satisfied with the responses I got. That's why I'm asking you. I, I want what I guess is a Bolo's perspective on it. When you asked it at the academy, what did your instructors tell you? Benji countered. She'd been officially in command of Benji for barely a month, yet she'd already come to feel more comfortable with him than she'd ever had with anyone else in her entire life. Partly, she supposed, that was because she was aware of how old he was, how many years of experience lay behind him. In many ways, he was like a trusted elder, a grizzled old sergeant, or perhaps even a grandfatherly presence. She felt she could ask him anything, expose any uncertainty, in the knowledge that he would regard her youthful ignorance with compassionate tolerance rather than ridicule and she'd already discovered a fondness for the Socratic method. Well, they told me there are three main reasons. First, is the necessity of inserting a human presence into the command and control loop at the most basic level. Second, the necessity of providing a bolo and the brigade with a human face to interact with the human communities the bolos are assigned to protect. And third, to be sure that in the event of crippling damage to your psychotronics, there's someone at least with the chance of preventing rogue behavior and you did not feel this was a sufficient explanation for the policy? I didn't think it was a complete explanation. Ah, a subtle but meaningful distinction, Benji observed. Menenka felt the flush of pleasure at the hint of approval in his tone. They rumbled along for a few more seconds, and then Benji made the electronic sound he used as the bolo equivalent to a human clearing his throat. I believe you are correct that there are additional reasons, Menenka. i believe there are also reasons why your academy instructors did not explain those other reasons to you one of the reason for their failure to fully explain it to you i suspect is that i have observed that humans are sometimes uncomfortable exposing the deep-seated emotions to one another both of manenka's eyebrows rose at that bolo's last sentence but she simply lay back on the couch waiting despite major frederick's comments to you there's a slight but significant statistical enhancement in the combat effectiveness of bolos operating with human commanders on board as compared to Bolo's operating purely autonomously in battle reflex mode. Is there really? minika couldn't keep the dead out of her voice. I mean, they told us in the third year tactics, but I never really believed it or that it was still true at any rate. To be honest, I thought they were telling us that so we wouldn't feel as useless as a screen door in an airlock. And you're telling me they really meant it? Indeed. Reflect that the Major did not tell you to resign your command to me. She told you not to second-guess me. If you consider that carefully, I think you will recognize that it is no more than the advice she would give to you if I had been dealing with a human subordinate who was simply more experienced, knowledgeable, and informed at the moment than you were. In essence, she was advising you, as a new junior officer, not to joggle the elbow of an experienced non-commissioned officer at a moment when decisions have become time-critical. Well, I suppose so. But that still doesn't change the fact that both you think and react faster than any human possibly could so how can the presence of a human commander enhance your performance in combat surely it constitute an additional layer of grit doesn't it in the heat of a complicated tactical situation it undoubtedly does or would if the commander in question has not learned when to intervene and when to allow the bolo full autonomy but humans whatever the limitation of their perceptions Retain even today a better intuitive information processing capability than bolos have ever possessed. Bolos think linearly, Moneka. We simply think very, very quickly by human standards. We process information, calculate probabilities, and select actions and responses based on those calculations. But humans, and especially those who have passed the screening process the brigade utilizes, have a superior ability to discount portions of the probability matrix at a glance. Bolos, even in hyperheuristic mode, cannot do that. We must consider all probabilities and examine all logic trees in order to determine which may be safely discounted or ignored. A human may be wrong when he instinctively isolates the appropriate probabilities in which to concentrate, but he often makes the decision, right or wrong, more rapidly than even a bolo can do the same thing. What a bolo is capable of doing that a human is not is evaluating that decision. An experienced commander and his bolo are constantly engaged in a joint examination and evaluation of the tactical environment. The commander's function is to provide a general direction to isolate the objective and to adjust and prioritize that objective it is the bolo's function within the framework of that general direction to formulate and execute tactics to accomplish that purpose and it is that partnership which accounts for the combat enhancement to which i referred to a moment ago i believe you're telling me the truth benji but it still seems difficult to believe Perhaps because you, like many humans, are better able to recognize and comprehend the capabilities of a BOLO than you are to recognize and accept your own gifts. Nonetheless, it is true, and the correlation between human command and enhanced combat performance can be clearly tracked over the history of the Brigade. Admittedly, the enhancement was most pronounced in the early days of the Brigade, though the emergence of the Mark 25, it was very noticeable. Which is not surprising in the light of the limitations and constraints imposed upon the bolo's self awareness and autonomy up to that time from the date of deletion of the inhibitory software of the mark 25 two standard centuries ago that degree of enhancement has declined of course that in fact was one reason the brigade acceded to the pressure in favor of the independent deployment of unmanned mark 25 bolos for some years that however was as much civil government inspired economy measure adopted in light of the considerable expense of training bolo commanders as a tactical innovation, and it was never fully accepted within the brigade for several reasons. One of them, as subsequent analysis clearly confirmed, was that even a fully autonomous bolo was less capable in combat when not paired with a human commander, which was why the practice was discontinued with the Mark 26. That same capability advantage remains statistically differentiable today, although the capabilities of an increasingly advanced psychotronic circuitry and software have improved to a point, which the speed in which bolos process information, even linearly, has largely overtaken the human ability to process it intuitively. However, with the introduction of direct BOLO-human neural interfacing of the Mark 32, the enhancement level has gone up once more, and very sharply. While I obviously have no personal experience of the capability, it would appear from my analysis of the battle reports which have been disseminated that the direct linkage between an organic human brain and a BOLO psychotronics allows the human intuitive processes to function at very nearly BOLO data processing levels and speed. It is, in fact, that advantage over the capabilities of my own psychotronics which truly regulates bolas of my generation to obsolescence." Menenka felt a sudden, irrational flush of irritation whose strength surprised her. She didn't care what newer models of bolas might be capable of. She was Benji's commander, and hearing him calmly state that anything rendered him obsolescent infuriated her. Obsolescence. What a filthy concept. She knew her reaction was irrational. It it of the operator identification syndrome that the academy instructors had so earnestly warned their students against. Yet there'd always be a stubborn part of her, which remained emotionally convinced that an obsolescent was a label invented by humans to justify discarding intelligent machines, people who deserved far better from humanity they had served so well. In addition to its overt effect on combat effectiveness, however, I believe there is another uniquely human reason for the practice of pairing a human commander and a bolo, committing them to combat together. Put simply, it is a sense of obligation. Obligation? Indeed, Menenka. Do not make the mistake of assuming that your own emotional reaction, your own sense of bonding with the bolos with whom you serve, is unique to you. It has, throughout the history of the brigade, been a major concern, not in the least because of the fashion in which it has often caused bolo commanders to hesitate to commit their bolos against overwhelming enemy firepower. Ultimately, bolos are expendable, yet it is often easier for a bolo commander to consider himself expendable. Than it is for him to consider his bolo in the same fashion this is the reason your academy instructors warned you against about the dangers of OIS. yet while even they warned you the entire Dinochrome brigade suffers from an institutional form of OIS. the traditions of the brigade the mutual obligation of duty requires this human personnel to risk injury and death beside the bolos they commit to battle it is a self-imposed yet never fully stated and yet utterly inflexible requirement which has probably seen no equal since the ancient Spartan mother's injunction to her son that he come home carrying his shield in victory or carried dead upon it. It is in fact a very human attitude, and the fact that it is irrational makes it no less powerful, nor I must confess that it is one-sided. In the Bolo, humanity has created a fully self-aware battle companion, and I suspect humans do not truly realize even how fully they have succeeded in doing so. Bolos, too, have emotions, Menenka some are deliberately introduced into our core programming, duty, loyalty, courage if you will, the qualities and emotions required of a warrior. But there is also affection. And that, I think, was not deliberately engineered into us. We fully recognize that we are created to fight and when necessary, die for our creators. It is the reason we exist. But we also recognize that if we are asked to fight and when we are asked to die, that our creators fight and die with us. It is a compact, which I doubt most humans have ever intellectually examined, and perhaps that is your true strength as a species. It was not necessary for you to consciously grasp it in order to forge it into the first place, but it is so much a part of you, and yet you have given that strength to us, as well as to yourselves. The baritone voice paused. Meneka stared a glassy-eye at the vain visual pickup. No one at the Academy had ever suggested the existence of such a compact to her, and yet now Benji had bared it to her. She had realized that in an underlay at almost everything she'd been taught, it was the unstated subtext which completed the explanation of fierce bonds of loyalty between the brigade's legendary commanders and the bolos with whom it had fought and died. I I guess I never really thought of it that way, she said slowly. Indeed not. There was no need for you to do so. I wonder sometimes if you humans truly realize what a remarkable species you are. Part 3 Tag, you're it. Menanka called out in delight as Benji's Halbore indocal range finding LIDAR simulated a direct hit on Lazy. Why, you sneaky little twit, Captain Joseph Takahashi replied over the calm with a laugh. Lazy and I were sure that was you over to the east. Nope. That, Captain Sir, is a Mark 26 ECM drone. And just how the hell did you sneak a ground based decoy into position without us spotting you? Takahashi demanded. We cheated you two didn't know that major fredericks told us about the simulation yesterday i'm sorry she did what she told us yesterday she said major hendrickson said you and lazy been getting just a little bit too smug about your simulation scores and i'm pretty sure that if you go back and check your mission briefing you'll discover that no one told you that the opposition force hadn't had time to prepare they did so takahashi had begun and then broke off abruptly Menenka reached up and then clasped her hands behind her head as she reclined in Benji's command couch and waited. It took several seconds, but then Takahashi's chagrined voice came back over the calm. Alright, Lazy's gone back and analyzed the briefing and you're right. Although, in my own humble opinion, Major Hendrickson deliberately implied that it would be a meeting engagement with both sides arriving simultaneously. That's because your part of the simulation included dealing with faulty intelligence, Menenka told him. Actually, sir, I think she picked Benji and me for this partly because I'm still so much the new kid on the block. She figured we'd probably need the edge, or that we could certainly use it anyway. Don't sell yourself short, Lieutenant. You and Benji are coming along a lot faster than Lazy managed to bring me up to speed. And the Major didn't tell you how to set up your little trap, did she? No, Benji and I came up with that on our own. And you executed it perfectly. Don't forget that. It's not easy for even another bolo to surprise a bolo, even when one of the bolos in question comes in fat, dumb, and happy. Thank you, sir. And Maneka raised her right hand to Benji's visual pickup with the thumb extended in the ancient gesture of triumph, and the red light above the lens winked in reply. Joseph Takahashi was only about three standard years older than herself, but he'd been assigned to the 39th for almost two of those three years. Unlike her, he'd reported for duty with the battalion early enough in the war to get in after the ward entered its new uglier phase but before the brigade hq had begun raiding the second line battalions so ruthlessly for experienced commanders he had served the traditional six-month apprenticeship being mentored by one of those same experienced commanders and he was very very good he and his bolo 28g 179 laz were assigned to major carlos hendrickson's first company where they had established an enviable reputation for consistently outscoring everybody else in their regular simulations and field exercises. Of course, Takahashi did have a certain advantage over his fellow commanders, over and above the fact that he was one of the sneakiest tacticians Maneka had ever yet encountered. Lazy, whose cognomen clearly had been selected because of how poorly it described him, was the battalion's senior Bolo. Although his personality center was currently mounted in a Model G Warhol like Benji's, He had begun his existence as a Model B, the better part of 170 years ago. His current hull bore the battle honors he had won with his original configuration, as well as the one he would received after his personality center was transferred to his present hull, and they were headed by one Menenka had never seen before outside the Brigade's standards reference works, the Platinum Galactic Cluster with Star. The Battle of Chesterfield, in which Lazy had won that award, was the stuff of Brigade legends. It was also a classic tactical study at the academy where not a single student ever managed to win the engagement in simulation. A single company of Mark 28s had gone up against one entire battalion of Kai Sabres during the fringe rebellion which had followed the Zolanese war. The Kai Sabres had been clones of the Mark 28 itself, built using stolen technology after decades of espionage, and they had been based upon the Model G, not the Model B. Although their weaponry fits had been very similar, The Kai Saber's armor, battle screen and disruptor shields and targeting systems had all been superior to those of Lazy and his three consorts, but Chesterfield had been a planet whose critical strategic importance meant it couldn't be yielded without a fight. So 2nd Company, 12th Battalion, 9th Regiment of the Dynochrome Brigade had fought at 3-1 odds and when the relief force arrived, Lazy had been the only surviving Bolo or Kai Saber on the planet. They had found his immobilized wreck where he had made his final stand in a rugged mountain pass just short of Chesterfield's capital city, his commander dead on his breach command deck, and the last four Kai Sabres stacked up dead in front of them. His damage had been far too severe to merely repair, fixing it would have cost more and taken longer than building an entire, newer model Bolo from scratch. By that time, the brigade had adopted the practice of upgrading Bolo AIs and a reserve Model G Warhol had been activated to receive his undamaged personality center, after which he had soldiered on for another full standard century. Although she wasn't about to admit this to anybody, Menenka was more than just a little uncomfortable around Lazy. Benji was almost as six times as old as she was, with a distinguished record any Bolo might have envied, but Lazy was even older still, and it was difficult, she discovered, to know precisely how to react when one found itself in the presence of what was literally a living legend. Indeed, she often wondered how Takahashi reacted when they told him who he was getting his first bolo command. Probably tempted to cut his own throat, she thought with a grin, although she really didn't know the captain or lazy very well. On the other hand, she reflected as Benji rolled back toward the company depot area. I really don't know anyone outside the 3rd very well yet, now do I? The past two and a half months had flown past at breakneck speed for Lieutenant Maneka Trevor. In that time, she'd come even closer to Benji, close enough indeed, that she was guiltily aware that, as everyone had warned her she would, she'd become completely succumbed to operator identification syndrome. When she considered it, any other outcome had been probably been impossible. Benji was, quite simply, the most wonderful person, organic or psychotronic, she'd ever known. In less than 90 local days, he'd become her closest friend, her most trusted confidant, and the mentor the battalion had been unable to provide her with in a human form. She'd learned more from him in that short period, than all eight previous years of her training, and she knew it. That intense concentration on her bolo had pretty much eliminated any possibility of a social life, and although Major Fredericks had seen that she had been smoothly slotted into third company, she didn't even know some of the other company's bolo commanders by sight. That was something she was going to have to start doing something about, and she knew it. In fact, the Major had begun dropping gentle hints, now that she had settled in with her bolo, it was probably time she began getting to know some of the battalion's flesh and blood members as well. Well, Takahashi said as Lazy altered course, headed for First Company Depot area. I guess this is where we part company, Lieutenant. Good work. Lazy and I will be glad to have you on our flank anytime. Thank you, sir. Menenka knew her face was turning pink with pleasure, but she managed to keep her voice conversational. Angie and I feel the same way. We'll see you around, Lieutenant. And the two bolos continued toward their separate destinations as Menenka Trevor allowed herself to bask briefly and the knowledge that she was earning the acceptance of her vastly more experienced peers. Listen up, people. Manenka shook her head groggily as Major Frederick's sharp, hard voice echoed in her mastoid transceiver. Her entire skull seemed to be ringing like a gigantic bell, from the like emergency signal that just snatched her up out of the depths of sleep. We have an Alpha-1 Zulu alert, Fredericks continued, and Manenka sat bolt upright in her bed such minor considerations as her vibrating cranium totally forgotten. Alpha-1 Zulu? Get your butts up and awake, Fredericks went on grimly. The depot's already beginning final maintenance checks. Colonel Tikovsky and Major Dumfries will be briefing all personnel at 0230, so let's move it. The voice in Menenka's mastoid went silent, but the youthful lieutenant sat frozen for several seconds. Alpha-1 Zulu? That's impossible. Alpha-1 Zulu meant the full-fledged invasion of a major planet. And in the sort of war that this one had become, with the madness of plan Ragnarok and its Malconian equivalent, invasion was just another word for the murder of an entire planetary population. That was the sort of operation that was something the puppies weren't going to undertake with the secondary forces. No, it was the sort of operation where they committed entire armored divisions of the latest, most modern combat equipment they had. And the 39th Battalion was, for all intents and purposes, a training command. Its obsolescent bows had no business going up against front-line Malconian combat mechs with the sort of support which would be assigned to the invasion of a major Concordia planet. An icy wind seemed to blow through the marrow of her bones, and she was surprised when she looked down at her hands to realize they actually weren't trembling the way they felt they were. Banji, she said over her private link. Yes, Menenka, he replied instantly with all his normal calm assurance. This is real. This is not some sort of drill. No, Menenka, I'm afraid it is not a drill. Where are they hitting us? The target is Chartres. Menenka's belly seemed to fold in on itself. Chartres was in the neighboring Esterhazy sector, one sector further away from the frontier of the Malconian Empire, beyond Santa Cruz's Ursula sector. Esterhazy was a wealthier sector than Ursula, with the sort of heavily industrialized star systems which obviously made it a priority target, but it was also the better part of a month's hyper-travel from the line. Even assuming the invasion fleet was able to use the intervening jump points without being engaged, without that, the trip would take at least six weeks. How did the Unknown, the enemy has been pressing harder on the line in the vicinity of the Camperdown Sector for several months now. The Camperdown Sector lay on the far side of Ursula's Sector from Esterhazy, directly in the path of the Malconians. I would surmise that this was a deliberate stratagem intended to draw our naval forces and all available brigade units toward that sector in order to uncover Estrahazy. if so it has succeeded we can't be all the brigade has available maninka protested i fear we are all that can reach chartres in time to respond the santa cruz jump point connects to chartres via haskell we can be there within 36 standard hours of departure from santa cruz That strategic position between camperdown and Esterhazy is why Santa Cruz was developed as a major base in the first place, Manenka. Manenka nodded numbly, although she knew he couldn't see her, but still. How soon can someone else get there to support us? Unknown. I do not have sufficient data on current deployments to answer that question. Manenka swallowed hard, and then shook herself violently. Sitting here dithering was doing absolutely no one any good, she told herself, and then she climbed out of bed. All right, Benji, I'm up. I'll see you after the briefing. Colonel Tikovsky and Major Dumfries, the battalion XO, looked grim as they walked into the briefing room with the battalion unit commanders that assembled. They could have just as easily conducted the briefing electronically, canoe. In fact, if they had used the Bolo's tactical plots to display the information for the unit commanders, they probably could have imparted the information far more efficiently. But there was something ritualistic about gathering them all in the flesh, as it were. Some, almost atavistic compulsion to meet and gather strength from one another one last time, before some of the people in this room died. The commanders came to their feet as Tchaikovsky and Dumfries strode briskly to the traditional briefing lectern. Be seated, Tchaikovsky said in a clipped tone, boots rustled on the floor as they obeyed. He let them settle back into their chairs for a moment, gazing out over their faces, and then he cleared his throat. throat) I'm sure by this time you've all checked with your bolos, which means that you're all well aware that Dogboy's target is Chartres. For those of you who may not have the latest figures at your fingertips, that means a planetary population of 2.4 billion. Menenka shivered as the Colonel's simple sentence told them all they needed to know about the cost of failure. The good news for Chartrez's population is that the dog boys apparently want permanent possession of the system, probably because of the way it flanks the Haskell jump point. If they can keep it, they can pincer Ursula and Camperdown, which would require the Navy to at least double its strength in those two sectors, weakening it somewhere else along the line but it also means they aren't likely to use biological radioactives against the planet. Since they'll want to use it themselves, they're going to put in a ground force and take it the old-fashioned way, meter by meter, which means it'll take them a while, hopefully long enough for us to kick their ass up between their little puppy-dog ears. Commodore Selkirk has already received a subspace situation report from Camperdown Fleet HQ. It would appear that the enemy has succeeded in drawing us badly out of position. According to the Commodore SITREP, It'll be at least two full standard weeks before any substantial forces can be diverted to Chartres. Commodore Selkirk has his own system defense task force here in Santa Cruz, but it's going to be very heavily outnumbered by the Melconian fleet units escorting their attack force. Nonetheless, his is the closest naval force which can respond, and we're the closest ground force. We will be reinforced by the 351st Recon Company and 9th Marines, in addition to whatever whatever Commodore Selkirk can spare from his fleet units, but that's all we can count on so it's going to be up to us to stop the dog boys before they kill every single human being on the planet. He paused, letting his eyes travel across the grim faces looking back at him, and then smiled with absolutely no humor in it all. It is not what we expected, so I won't try and sugarcoat the situation for anyone. We're going to be substantially outnumbered and outgunned, and although the hyper-surveillance grid picked them up well short of the system perimeter, they're going to have been on the ground for at least 18 hours by the time we can get there. Hopefully, the Chartres orbital defenses are going to have taken a chunk out of them, but we can't rely on that. And, even if they have, those defenses aren't strong enough to fend off this big a force without the supporting fleet units they don't have. Commodore Selkirk is confident he can get us within assault range of the planet, but it's unlikely he'll be able to cover us all the way in. It'll have to be an assault landing, because the Dogboys are almost certain to have control of near-orbit space by the time we get there, which means at least some of the major cities are already going to be fireballs by the time we hit dirt. The exec here will give you the boarding schedule and what details we have about the situation in Sartrez in just a moment, but first, I have one more thing to say. He paused for a moment and then went on quietly. We're going to take losses, people, probably heavy ones, but we're the only chance the people on Chartres have, and we're the Dinochrome Brigade. Remember that. He held their eyes and then nodded and stepped back as the Major took his place at the lectern and brought up the huge hollow display behind him. Manenka lay back once again in the command couch at Benji's heart. She was aware that her pulse was hammering harder than it ought to have been, and although her mouth seemed unaccountably dry, she found herself swallowing again and again. Jitters, she told herself, and no wonder, I guess I'd have to be a bowl of myself not to feel them, but God, I'm scared. Benji, yes, menenka, Benji, I'm terrified out of my wits, she confessed miserably, no. You're not, he told her calmly. The visual display showed the blurry, featureless gray of hyperspace. All of his optical heads could pick up as he rode the assault pod locked into the exterior of the Slipner class transport Tannenberg. Over half his entire hull protruded beyond the pod's skin, exposing his onboard sensors and his weapons. and Captain Anton Harris and Unit 28D-431ALN, rode the pod hardpoint on the far side of Tannenberg's hull. Between them, Benji and Allen provided the otherwise unarmed transport, with the equivalent of a battle cruiser's energy weapon's firepower and an anti-missile capability at least as good as a light cruiser's. What they could not provide was the standoff attack range of a standard ship-to-ship missile. Their weapons simply weren't designed for that sort of environment. Maneka and Benji shared their pod with Company C, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Regiment, 9th Marine Division. Captain Blasthenek, Charlie Company's CO, had introduced herself to them when her company embarked, and she and Moneka had spent several hours discussing possible scenarios once they hit the surface of Chartres. Assuming any of us gets to the surface, she thought grimly, acutely conscious of the flutter of her pulse. Oh yes, I am terrified, she told her Bolo. You are frightened, Benji agreed. This is normal, and indeed healthy reaction to the prospect of battle and possible death. But your fear is far from paralyzing you or preventing you from thinking clearly, nor is fear a bad thing for you to experience. BOLOs do not experience that particular emotion in the same fashion as humans, smanenka, or so I believe. It has been said that with reason that our personalities are more bloodthirsty than those of most humans. As a result, we feel much of the anticipation as anxiety at a moment like this. It is, quite literally, what we are designed and built to do, our highest function. But do not think we are strangers to fear. We fear that we will fail in our mission. We fear we will prove unequal to the challenge we face. And just as our internal diagnostic systems have been programmed to feel the equivalent of pain when we take damage, our personalities include a fierce desire to survive. It has been some time since the Accordiat made the error of believing that a warrior who embraces death without fear is the ideal. Fear is as much a tool as courage, Menenka. As too much courage becomes suicidal recklessness, too much fear can become paralyzing panic. But to achieve the most effective level of combat, any warrior, human or Bolo, must properly balance the cautionary impact of fear with the aggressiveness engendered by courage. This, I believe, you have done. You have a better opinion of me than I do, Manenka said. Because you perceive all of your faults from within, Benji said serenely. I, however, am able to observe your responses and actions from without. You would not have been able to coordinate so well with Captain Balasthenic had you been terrified out of your wits. Maybe, Komenenka conceded dubiously. Actually, she thought for all the time she and Balasthenic had spent discussing possible tactical situations and the responses to them, there hadn't been really a great deal of planning they could do. Either they got to the surface of the planet alive, or they didn't. If they did, Bolestenex Marines would disembark on their own light armored vehicles and form up to follow her and Benji as the 39th Battalion advanced against the enemy. And after that, everything would depend on what happened next. The 9th Marines were a potent fighting force, at least the equal of any Malconian army division, and arguably superior of the two of them in actual combat power. But neither the personal armor nor their vehicles had the firepower and toughness to stand up Malconian combat mechs. If the 39th could get through the perimeter of the Malconian LZ, the 9th would undoubtedly prove its worth. But getting through that perimeter in the first place was going to be supremely difficult. Captain Jeske informs me that we'll be dropping out of hyper in approximately 12 minutes, Benji informed her suddenly. And she twitched in her command couch. That approximately 12 minutes? had to have come directly from Jeshki, Tannenberg's merely human commander. No Bolo would have been guilty of such imprecision. The thought made her giggle unexpectedly, and she blinked as she realized her anticipated amusement was entirely genuine. Maybe I'm not such a hopeless basket case after all, she thought. Understood. Please make sure Captain Bolusnetic also has that information, she said aloud. I have. Well, then I guess all we can do is wait. The relief force from Santa Cruz dropped out of hybrid a single, perfectly coordinated transition and tactical displays aboard the Navy Task Force warships began blinking alive with a rash of ominous red icons. Commodore Selkirk's entire combat strength consisted of one four-ship battle cruiser division and one carrier, supported by eight heavy cruisers, nine light cruisers, and twelve destroyers. From the reports, Chartres Near Space Command had managed to get out before subspace communication satellites were taken out. He already knew that even after the attackers' losses against Chartres' orbital defenses, which had not been insubstantial, he still faced six Malconian battleships, five battlecruisers, 20 screening fists. Like the Malconian ground unit of the same name, a naval fist consisted of three ships, a heavy cruiser supported by a light cruiser, and a destroyer. The comparative number of hulls, 34 human vessels, Post to 69 Malconian ships, was bad enough. The tonnage differential was worse. Much worse. Despite that, Selkirk had certain offsetting advantages. One was that unlike deep space arrays which had given Chartres two full days warning of the Malconian's arrival, even a battleship's detection range against a unit approaching through hyper was severely limited. The Malconian CO had been given less than four hours warning before Selkirk's ship came piling at a hyper, and his combat strength was still at a position. Another advantage was that every one of Selkirk's ships possessed a fully self-aware AI, and those ships' command crews were neurally linked to them. They literally thought and fought at the same hyper-heuristic speed as a bolo. None of which changed the fact the battleship component of the enemy force alone outmassed his entire task force by more than two to one. Orders flashed outward from Selkirk's flagship. He arranged his approach very carefully, and his task force and the accompanying transports deployed with smooth efficiency. The Commodore had deliberately dropped most of his warships back into normal space, well inside the three light-minute sphere of the Chartres jump point. That was precisely where the Mulconians had been expecting him, and although he managed to emerge into end space outside their immediate engagement range. But the transports, accompanied by the carrier indomitable, and two of his destroyers made the transition to normal space out on the very rim of the jump point at its closest approach to the inner system. It had been a calculated risk. Since it was always possible, the Malconian CO might have anticipated the maneuver and deployed it to smash the transports first. But it had paid off. The main body of the Malconian fleet was exactly where Selkirk had hoped it would be, well out system from the transport's emergence point within the Commodore and his main combatants between it and the transports. The eight transports, trailing their three escorts, arrowed straight toward the planet while Selkirk and his brutally outnumbered force squared off to keep the Malconians off their backs. Manenka felt physically sick to her stomach as her tactical plot showed the sea of hostile icons sweeping toward the Commodore and his handful of ships. She wasn't trained in Navy tactical iconography, but she didn't need to be to recognize the dreadful imbalance between the two forces. She didn't have a great deal of time to think about that, however. Four Malconian fists had apparently been providing orbital fire support for the ground forces. Now that the deep space defenses had been suppressed, and now they came peeling out of Chartres' planetary orbit as the transports steadied down their approach. Incoming missiles. Enemies targeting the transports, Benji announced. Stand by for anti-missile defense, Manenka replied, more as she was aware for something to say than Benji had needed instructions from her. Standing by? On each of the Slepners, pairs of bolos brought up their battle screens and activated their tracking systems, and waited with psychotronic calm as the Malconian missiles shrieked toward them. And to her own immense surprise, Manenka Trevor felt her own pulse steady as she watched the arrowhead-shaped missile icons race to meet the Tannenberg. More icons blossomed on Benji's tactical plot, and Maneka recognized them as the Indomitable's outgoing fighters. There were 80 of them, and they were headed straight for the enormously larger Malconian warships under maximum power. The missiles targeted onto the transports ignored them, and Meneka bared her teeth as she recognized the Malconian's error. They should have tried to nail Indomitable before she launched, she thought, and they're about to find out that they had just wasted their entire initial salvo. Hypervelocity velocity countermeasures were already spitting outward from the BOLOs. Designed for planetary combat, they moved slowly compared to the deep-space weapons charging to destroy the transports, but slowly was purely a relative term. They moved quickly enough when they were detected by the BOLOs targeting and computational systems, and groups of them relentlessly bracketed each incoming missile, boring into their offensive of electronic countermeasures, and one by one the Malconian missiles were picked off far short of the attack range. Only 14 got through the counter-missile interception envelope, and 13 of those were picked off by infinite repeater fire far short of their targets. Only one got close enough to actually detonate against the battle screen protecting its intended victim, and that battle screen, reinforced by the full power of the Bolo on the opposite side of the transport hull, held. And while those missiles were attacking, the fighters from Indomitable flung themselves upon the Leviathan foes. Twenty of them died before they got into engagement range. It would have been even worse, Menenka thought, sickened by the carnage, if the Malconians had held back that initial missile launch, targeted on the fighters they ought to have known had it been coming, but 25% losses before the surviving fighter pilots even crossed the missile envelope was quite bad enough. The 60 survivors ignored the destroyers shooting at them, instead they charged straight toward the cruisers. Close-in weapons opened up on them, but the fighters bored in grimly, holding their fire. The fleet's little vessels carried plasma torpedoes, triple barreled short-ranged weapons with an even heavier punch than Benji's Hellbore, but slow firing. The launchers took long enough to recharge, that each fighter would only be able to fire a single salvo per firing pass. But the other energy weapons were intended for dogfighting against other fighters, too light to significantly damage something heavily armored as a warship and the pilots were determined to make their single launch each count. Half of them died before they reached the range they sought and salvaged their torpedoes. But unlike missiles, plasma torpedoes were light-speed weapons. They ripped in, impossible to intercept, and all four of the heavy cruisers and one of the light cruisers disappeared in the hellish glare of impacting plasma. Each torpedo was the equivalent of a shaped charge fusion warhead, slamming into its target with a megaton all of brimstone and battle screens failed, and armor and hull plating vaporized as those man-made thunderbolts disemboweled their targets. One of the three surviving light cruisers was severely damaged, staggering sideways in a shower of shattered debris and the telltale shroud of venting atmosphere. Her emission signature was flickering uncertainly, and her drive field went down completely, but her consorts had been luckier. The fighter group targeted on one of them had taken murderous casualties on its way in. Only two of its pilots had survived a fire, and their launch signals had been badly desynchronized. The plasma torpedoes came in as separate, individual attacks. Without the focus and precise timing which had killed its cruiser fellows, and the ship's battle screen managed to deflect most of their effectiveness, she was hurt, but not badly, and she continued to belch missiles at the transports. But the fourth light cruiser had clearly taken heavy damage. Her weapons fire ceased almost entirely, and her battle screen fluctuated wildly for a fraction of a second before it came back up to full strength and steadied. But there was nothing wrong with her drive, and she changed course abruptly. Collision vector, Benji announced, and Manenka bit her lip as the cruiser's projected path intersected with Indomitable. The carrier's AI altered course, dodging hard, but her evasion options were too limited. The geometry was against her, and although her light shipboard weapons fired desperately, Carriers weren't supposed to get this close to her main enemy combatants. They were supposed to operate under the cover and protection of an entire task force, providing a fighter umbrella to operate at ranges of up to several light hours away from her flight decks, or on independent operations of extreme range from anything but enemy fighters. And so they were equipped primarily with anti-fighter weapons, designed to provide volume of fire against swarms of attacking fighters, not to batter their way through a cruiser's battle screen, But, Indomitable had no choice but to go meet the enemy this time, as she and her escorting destroyers fought to clear the way and keep the Malconians away from the transports which had to reach the surface of Chartres. She was far too ahead of the Tannenberg and other transports for any of the Bolos to engage the cruiser before impact, and yet it was so agonizingly close. She was barely a hundred kilometers outside of Benji's engagement range when the damaged cruiser slammed into her battle screens like a quarter-million-ton hammer and both ships vanished in a kinetic fireball brighter than the system's sun. Maneka swore bitterly as both icons disappeared from her plot, but even as she cursed, and even as she felt the horror and the deaths of almost three thousand fellow human beings, she knew that at this moment, right here and now, Indomitable had been expendable. She and her massacred fighter group, of which only eleven survived, had done their job. Only one of the intercepting Malconian cruisers remained, and a merciless corner of Menenka's mind wondered if the crew of that ship truly realized what was about to happen to it. The cruiser and all four enemy destroyers bored in, and the Concordia's destroyers went to meet them. They were faster than the Malconians, more maneuverable, and they fought with a deadly efficiency. But there were only two of them. And, if their human-AI fusions used their weapons far more effectively, they were outgunned by over 5-to-1. It was a short, vicious engagement, a knife-range battle which stripped away much of the combat advantage human ships' superior coordination and defensive systems normally conferred, because it had to be. The Destroyer crews knew they had to clear the transport's path before any additional Malconian units managed to break past the Commodore Selkirk or suddenly appeared unexpectedly from the far side of the planet. And so they took the Malconians on at the enemy's most effective range. They died, but they took three of the four intercepting destroyers with them, and the fourth was so badly damaged that it reeled out of the engagement with its battle screen entirely down. The light cruiser burst through the engagement, streaming atmosphere, but with its energy weapons intact, and all her surviving batteries opened fire on the CNS Tannenberg, which happened to be the lead transport. Mananka felt her face locking in a snarl of triumph as the cruiser spat death at her. The battle screen which now protected the transport was a Bolo battle screen, designed to deflect the fire of Benji's own main armament at anything beyond point-blank range, and it sneered the lesser energy weapons mounted on a mere light cruiser. Benji's battle screen brushed the long-range fire aside almost contemptuously. Then his main turret traversed slightly and fired once. When the Mark 28 Bolo had first been introduced, its main armament had been the equivalent that mounted in a Concordia Navy current generation ship of the line. Technology had moved on since then, into newer, deadlier, more powerful weaponry. But even today, nothing lighter than a battle cruiser, and precious few of them, mounted anything approaching the lethality of his 110 centimeter hellbore, and certainly no light cruiser did and none of them had been designed to survive its fury. Benji's target shattered, blowing apart and then abruptly vaporizing as the ship's antimatter power plants' containment fields went down. The fierce, blinding flash of the fireball polarized Benji's direct visual display, and Menenka heard her own soprano shriek of triumph as the cruiser disappeared. The remaining crippled cruiser and destroyer died almost as spectacularly seconds later under the vengeful of the other bolos and then the transports were clear racing toward the planet they had come to save or die trying despite its population which was certainly of respectable size for any world outside of the core sectors the planet of chartres had been touched relatively lightly by the imprint of mankind All of its developed, terraformed cropland was concentrated on only one of its three major landmasses, along with virtually all of its citizens, two-thirds of whom lived in a relatively small number of large urban centers surrounded by rolling farmland or virgin forest. But Chartres was lightly touched no longer. Benji's assault pod separated from Tannenberg and dived roaringly into the planetary atmosphere. And his infinite repeaters fired steadily as he and the rest of the battalion systematically eliminated every piece of orbital debris that didn't carry a Concordia IFF code. Malconian stealth systems were good, but they weren't perfect, and the battalion's relentless assault burned away the reconnaissance platforms the invaders had deployed. Mananka studied the visual images from Benji's optical heads as the assault wave howled downward. La Roche City, the planetary capital, for this population of over 30 million was a smoking, blazing sea of ruins. Province and Nouveau-Dijon were a little better, although at least the rim of nouveau Dijon's suburbs appeared to have survived partially intact, and the same was true for at least two dozen of the planet's other cities and larger towns. The green and brown patchwork of farms and the dark green of woodlands surrounding what had once been the habitations of man were dotted with the wreckage of missiles and air-breathing attack craft. Which had been destroyed by the ruined city's perimeter defenses, and the towering pillars of smoke and dust seemed to be everywhere. Although Chartres' population had been tiny compared to one of the core worlds like Old Earth, it had been large enough, and the star system's industrial base had been extensive enough to provide quite heavy ground-based defensive systems. The local planetary and system authorities, with the assistance of the Concordia Central Government, had taken advantage of that and spent most of the past six standard years fortifying preparing against the probability of an eventual Malconian attack. But with the line grinding back only slowly across the Camperdown sector, the planning authorities had given higher priority to systems and planets under more immediate threat. No one had anticipated that the Empire would show the daring to strike this deeply into a major star system inside the Concordiat's frontier. And the local defenses, however formidable, had not been formidable enough. Someone should have seen it coming, she thought grimly. Sure. They had to send in the equivalent of an entire fleet to pull it off, but the tempo of this war has done nothing but accelerate from the very beginning, and both sides are getting more desperate as the casualty totals go up. We should have realized that sooner or later, the puppies would roll the dice like this. If they can pull it off, establish a sizable fleet presence this far into our rear, at the very least it would force us into a major redeployment until we could deal with it. That was probably worth risking the loss of the entire force all by itself. And that doesn't even count taking out Chartres' population and industrial base. But at least the system's defenders had given enough warning to execute their evacuation plans. Manenka had no way of knowing, and did not want to know, how many of the citizens of those butchered cities had failed to get out in time. But the glowing green icons of scores of huge refugee centers, all of them with at least rudimentary previously prepared defenses, burned in Benji's strategic plot. In addition to the fixed defenses, most of them were ringed by the additional icons of planetary militia and the remnants of the detachments of regulars deployed to the planet. And those defenses appeared to be holding against the aerial bombardment raining down upon them. Now that the fleet units which had been providing the Malconian attackers with fire support from orbit had been dispersed, but there was no way any of them could have hoped to hold more than briefly against the terrifying concentration of ground-based firepower, the Malconians had managed to land on the planetary surface before the Concordia Relief Force arrived. It was silent on Benji's command deck, despite the hypervelocity hurricane howling about the Assault Pod's hull as it blazed deeper and deeper into the atmospheric envelope, and Menenka felt her heart sink as she studied the available data. The planetary reconnaissance system had largely been destroyed, but a few of its satellites still survived, and now that the thirty-ninth Battalion had arrived, they had someone to report to once more. It was an advantage of which she knew Colonel Tukovsky meant to take full advantage, but very little of what they had reported so far was good. The Malconian planetary assault had been led by five of their heavy assault brigades, each composed of two armored regiments of 30 mechs each, 12 Heimdall-class light reconnaissance mechs, and six of their fists, with a total of six Surturs and 12 Fenrises, plus one infantry regiment and an air cavalry regiment, supported by an artillery battalion. That was bad enough, but the initial assault wave had been followed up by two full infantry divisions and at least 12 strategic bombardment regiments with their long-range missile batteries, and a number of matching space defense missile sites. They had also deployed at least four additional anti-armor regiments of Loki tank destroyers. Each of them basically little more than a single 60-centimeter Hellbore mounted on an unarmored ground effect or counter-grav lift platform. They were fast and packed a punch, which could be dangerous, especially if they could get into a flanking position. But they were relatively easy to kill once they revealed their positions. That, unfortunately, wasn't something the battalion could count on them doing. The Malconian advantage in stealth technology applied to their ground systems as well as their space-going platforms. Human sensors were better than the Malconian equivalent, which tended to level the playing field somewhat, but Malconian platforms like Loki's could be extremely difficult for even a bolo to spot, especially if they'd had a few hours in which to perfect their camouflage. Still, it appeared from the reconnaissance satellites that the puppies had opted for more of a brute force approach than sneakiness. Either that or their campaign plan had accepted from the beginning that a Concordiat relief force was likely to arrive before they could set about the business of properly exterminating the planetary population. Whatever the reasoning, they had avoided dispersing their forces in smaller concentrations the 39th could have chopped up in detail. Instead, The vast majority of their ground units were concentrated in a single, roughly semicircular defensive perimeter near the southern end of Lorraine, the planet's single, heavily populated continent. The ends of the perimeter's arc of fortified positions were firmly anchored on the ocean, which provided at least some protection to their backs, and while concentrating their forces that tightly might make them a tempting target, it also allowed them to concentrate all of their defensive firepower, what they had assembled there. Would have been sufficient to make a battlecruiser squadron think twice about closing in to engage them from space, and it was obvious that despite the relatively short time they'd been in possession of the planet, they dug their ground combats in deeply. Menenka's command couch jolted her suddenly as the assault pod hit the surface of Chartres. At least we got down unopposed, she told herself, and felt more quivers as Benji released the docking latches, threw power to his drive train, and ground free of the pod. The bolo was muttered in Captain Ballasthenic's communications channels, and she heard the Marines clipped, tersely professional combat chatter as their own vehicles whined out of the pod's vehicle bays. Benji's starboard infinite repeaters fired suddenly, knocking down an air-breathing Malconian recon drone as it popped up over a nearby line of hills. The drone disintegrated into a flaming, fragment-raining ball before it could possibly have gotten off a contact report and Benji's secondary turret swung smoothly, rotating back and forth as he waited for additional targets. Captain Harris and Alan had brought their pod in less than two kilometers to the west of Benji's current position, and the remainder of Tannenberg's assault load was rapidly assembling around them. Tannenberg herself and all seven of the other transports had never even approached the atmosphere, and they were already streaking directly away from the planet, and the ferocious battle raging between Commodore Selkirk's outnumbered task force and the Romanian Malconian warships in the system. Menenka knew the unarmed, agile transport vessels had no business anywhere near anyone who could shoot at them once their bows had been landed. Drop and scoot had been the standard doctrine for the brigade's supporting transport command for centuries, after all. But that didn't prevent a chill sense of abandonment as she watched their transportation racing to get far enough away from the planet to drop into hyper. Talk about burning your bridges behind you, she thought wryly, as Alan knocked down a second recon drone, and she surprised herself with a desert dry chuckle of amusement. All right, people. Colonel Tokovsky's voice came over the battalion command net from Unit
1: 28G-740-GRG. We're down, we're in one piece, and we know where the dog boys are. And unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of time. The Commodore Sulkirk is still wading into them, but it doesn't look good for his task force, so we have to break into the dog boy position before any of their starships get loose and turn up to start dropping missiles on our heads as we advance. That's going to limit our tactical options, and we have to assume the dog boys will manage to localize us and bring us under fire before we get into attack range. Greg is loading movement orders into your bowls now, and General Hodgesi's Marines will conform to our movements. Maneka watched the intricate patterns of
0: lines and arrows representing the movement of the battalion. And the four mark 27 reconnaissance bolos of the attached 351st reconnaissance company appeared on her secondary plot the battalion had dropped well within the malconians theoretical engagement envelope but the combined destruction of the warships which had been giving them firepower support and the loss of their orbital reconnaissance platforms had at least temporarily blinded the puppies no one could hit what they couldn't see so until the malconians could positively locate the battalion all of their firepower was useless which, of course, explained the drones Benji and Alan had knocked down. Colonel Tukovsky's bolo, Greg, was feeding the battalion's movements plan simultaneously to the Marines, Manenka knew, and watched the blue icons of the 9th Division flowing into formation behind the battalion. Well behind the battalion. Their infantry carriers and supporting light-whippet tanks, unlike those used by the Malconians, were all counter grab supported with a sprint speed of well over 500 kilometers per hour they would lie back far enough to steer clear of the tornado of fire the battalion would expect to draw as it advanced toward the melconian position if the battalion succeeded in breaking that perimeter the ninth would come in screaming in behind them and maneka had a very clear mental image of what the heavily armed marine troopers in their individual powered combat armor would do to the puppies if they ever got to grips with their more lightly armored infantry adversaries but unless the battalion could open up a breach for them, any attempt by the Marines to close with the enemy would be suicidal. So if the battalion failed, instead of racing to exploit success, the Ninth troopers would use that same speed to fall back to the Chartres refugee centers, where they might at least hope to kill a few more Malconians before the Puppy's combat mechs ground them into the mud. All right, people.
1: Colonel Everard Tykovsky said as the final movement orders were acknowledged by all units, Greg estimates 97 minutes to contact with the enemy. Let's go.
0: Green, rolling woodland spread out before Manenka in the panoramic view from Benji's forward optical head as the battalion thundered toward the enemy. At least some of the puppy's recon drones had lasted long enough to spot them now, and she felt her hands sweating, the dryness of her mouth, as the first Malconian long-range fire screamed toward them. She tried not to think about the odds. Sixty searchers, and twice as many Fenrises would have been heavy odds for even a battalion of modern Bolo's. For the 39th, they were impossible. And for every human and Bolo in the battalion from the Colonel down, knew it. melkonian warships are entering range of the planet, Benji announced, and Maneka responded with a jerky nod. Commodore Selkirk's task force had paid the price of its gallantry. Not a single one of its ships had survived. But they'd ripped the guts out of the Malconian fleet before they had died. None of the Puppy's battleships or battle cruisers remained, nor did any of their heavy cruisers. But nine light cruisers and eleven destroyers had been screaming towards Chartres at maximum for over twelve minutes now. She'd hoped the battalion would win the race to get to grips with the Puppy's ground forces before the surviving fleet units could intervene. But the numbers blinked in on Bungie's plot, in grim confirmation that they would not. The missile batteries the Malconians had dug in at the heart of their ground enclave vomited fire, and high-trajectory missiles rained down on the battalion. More felt like cosmic flails fired from the approaching warships to support the ground-based systems. Their flight profiles gave the battalion easy intercept solutions, but they'd never actually been intended to get through in the first place. Their function was solely to saturate the Bolos' defenses, while the real killers broke through at lower altitudes.
1: Remote platforms report cruise missiles launching along all the enemy front, Benji's resident baritone told her. Current estimate, approximately 4,000 plus or minus 15%. Understood, Meneka rasped
0: tautly. Colonel Tchaikovsky advises us that the enemy cruisers and destroyers are altering course. On the basis of their new heading and speed, I estimate a probability of 96.72% that they will endeavor to enter energy range of the battalion simultaneous with the arrival of the low-altitude missile attack, you're just full of good news this afternoon, aren't you? She responded, baring her teeth in what might have charitably even called a smile. I would not call it good," Benji replied with one of his electronic chuckles. On the other hand, the enemy's obvious desire to mass all available firepower at the earliest possible moment does offer us some tactical advantages, Manecha. Yeah, sure it does. She shook her head. I am serious, the bolo told her, and she stopped shaking her head and looked up at the internal visual pickup in disbelief. Just how does piling even more firepower on top of us improve our chances of survival, she demanded. I did not say it would enhance our survival probability. I merely observed that it offers us certain tactical advantages, or openings at least, which we could not generate ourselves, the bolo replied, and there was more than simple electronic certitude in its voice. There was experience, the personal experience of his 126 years' service against the enemies of mankind. If their warships had opted to remain at extended missile ranges, rather than bringing their energy batteries into play, they would have remained beyond the range of our energy weapons. As it is, however, analysis of their new flight paths indicates they will enter their own energy weapon range of the battalion 16.53 seconds before the arrival of the ground force cruise missiles. Manenka Trevor's blue eyes widened in understanding, and the Bolo produced another chuckle. This one was cold, without a trace of humor. They're giving us a shot at them before their missiles reach us? She She asked. Indeed. They have clearly attempted to coordinate the maneuver carefully, but their timing appears to be inadequate to their needs. Unless they correct their flight profiles within the next 38 seconds, the battalion will be able to engage each warship at least once, before the cruise missiles execute their terminal maneuvers. If they had been willing to wait till after the initial missile attack before closing, or even to remain permanently beyond hellbore range, they would have eventually been able to destroy the entire battalion with missiles alone. Instead of giving us the opportunity to take out their orbital fire support completely, she finished for him. Indeed, Benji repeated, and she heard the approval and pride in his deep voice. Pride in her, she realized, in the student she had become when the colonel gave her, her first Bolo command, and in so doing, committed her into that Bolo's care for her true training. That was what put the pride into his voice, the fact that his student had grasped the enormity of the Malconians' error so quickly. The plunging thunder of the incoming high-trajectory missiles howled down out of the heavens like lightning bolts of crazed deities. But the charging behemoths of the 39th Battalion didn't even slow. Ancient as they might be, they were bolos. Batteries of ion bolt infinite repeaters and laser clusters raised their muscle toward the skies and raved defiance. Counter missile cells spat fire and the heavens blazed. The battalion raced forward at over eighty kilometers per hour through the thick virgin forest. Not even their stupendous bulk could remain steady over at such terrain at such a high a speed. And the shock frame of Manenka's command couch hammered at her as Benji shuddered and rolled like some ancient windjammer of old Earth rounding Cape Horn. But even as his mighty tracks ground the 60 meter tree trunks into crushed chlorophyll, his weapons tracked the incoming missiles with deadly precision. Missile after missile, dozens, scores of them simultaneously, disappeared in eye tearing fireballs that dimmed the light of Chartres's primary into insignificance. Despite her terror, despite the certainty that the battalion could not win, Mananka Trevor stared at the imagery on her visual display with a sense of awe. The Malconian missile attack was a hemisphere of flame, a moving bowl above her where nothing existed but fire and destruction, and the glaring corona of wrath of an entire battalion of bolos. Enemy cruise missiles entering her defensive envelope in 21.4 seconds. Benji announced calmly, even as the display filled with blinding light. Enemy warships entering engagement range in 4.61 seconds, he added, and there was much hunger and satisfaction in his tone. Stand by to engage, Menenka said, although both of them knew it was purely a formality. Standing by, Benji acknowledged, and his main turret trained around in a smooth whine of power, Hellbore elevating. Menenka's eyes strayed from the visual display to the tactical plot, and her blood ran cold as she saw the incredibly dense rash of missile icons streaking toward her. The battalion's reconnaissance drones were high enough to look down at the terrain-following missiles as they streaked the atmosphere, barely 50 meters above the highest terrain obstacles, at five times the speed of sound. The atmospheric shock waves of thousands of missiles generated at that velocity were like a giant hammer smashing everything in their path around into splinters. And when they reached the battalion, it would be even worse. At their speeds, even the bows would have only tiny fractions of a second to engage them, and their defenses were already effectively saturated by the ongoing high-trajectory bombardment. Between the missile storm and the main body of the battalion was the 351st Recon's four Mark 27s, 20% lighter and more agile than the Mark twenty-eight the Invictus Bolus were much more heavily equipped with stealth and ECM. And they had sacrificed the Mark 28's extensive VLS missile cells in favor of even more active anti-missile defenses. It was their job to fight for information, if necessary, and with their higher speed, to probe ahead of the battalion for traps and ambushes the enemy might have managed to conceal from the reconnaissance drones. But now the position meant that they would take the first brunt of the crew's missiles, unless the sophisticated electronic warfare systems could convince the puppy missile seekers they were somewhere else. She jerked her eyes away from those horribly exposed icons, and her teeth flashed in an ivory snarl as a score of other icons in another quarter of the display, the ones representing the Malconi destroyers and light cruisers, were snared in sudden crimson sighting circles. Enemy warships acquired, Benji announced, and then instantly, engaging, A dozen 110cm Hellwarfs fired as one, and the atmosphere, already tortured by the explosions of dying missiles, shrieked in protest as massive thunderbolts of plasma howled upward. All nine light cruisers and three of the destroyers died instantly, vomiting flame as those incredible bolts of energy ripped contemptuously through their battle screens and splintered their hulls. Superconductor capacitors ruptured and antimatter containment fields failed, adding their own massive energy to the destruction, and the vacuum above Chartres rippled and burned. The horrified crews of the remaining Malconi destroyers had exactly four fleeting seconds to realize what had happened. That was the cycle time of the Mark 28's Hellbore, And precisely four seconds later, a fresh, equally violent blast of light and fury. Marked the deaths of the remaining enemy warships. Maneka Trevor heard her own soprano banshee howl of triumph, but even as the battalion turrets swiveled back around, the tidal bore of cruise missiles burst in upon it. Counter missiles, infinite repeaters, laser clusters, autocannon, even anti personnel clusters belched defiance as the hypervelocity projectiles came streaking in. They died by the dozens, by the score, by the hundred, but they came in by Thousands, and not even Bolo's active defenses could intercept them all. Battle screens stopped some of them. Some of them missed. Some of them killed one another, consuming each other in their fireball deaths. But far too many got through. The exposed Mark 27 suffered first. Venenka's shock frame hammered her savagely as Benji's massive hull twisted through an intricate evasion pattern, his defensive weapon streaming fire but even through scores of missiles poured in on him, far more, probably as many as half or even two-thirds of the total Malconian launch, had locked onto the quartet of Mark 27s. The Invictus might mount more anti-missile defenses than the Triumphant, but not enough to weather this storm. For an instant, she wondered what had gone wrong with their EW systems, why so many missiles had been able to lock onto them, and then she realized they weren't trying to prevent the missiles from locking them up. They were deliberately enhancing their target signatures turning themselves into decoys drawing the missiles in away from the battalion her heart froze as she recognized what they were doing and then the holocaust washed over them the towering explosions crashed down on the reconnaissance company like the boot of some angry titan hobnailed in nuclear flame they were 40 kilometers ahead of the battalion's main body and the warheads were standard puppy issue incongruously clean in what had become a genocidal war of mutual extermination. Yet there were hundreds of them, and the lethal tides of radiation sleeted outward with a thermal flash, followed moments later by the blast front itself. Menenka clung to her sanity with bleeding fingernails as Thor's hammer slammed into Benji. The huge bolo lurched like a storm-tossed galleon as the green living forest about them already torn and outraged by the battalion's passage and the handful of high-trajectory missiles which had gotten through flashed into instant flame. The battalion charged onward, straight through that incandescent inferno, dura alloy armor shrugging aside the radiation and blast and heat which would have smashed the life instantly from the fragile protoplasmic beings riding their command decks. The visual display showed only a writhing ocean of fire and dust of explosion and howling wind, like some obscene preview of hell, but it was hell BOLOS were engineered to survive and defeat. None of the reconnaissance BOLOS in the direct path of the missile strike survived, but the chaos and massive spikes of EMP generated by the missiles which killed them had disastrous effects on the missiles which had acquired the rest of the battalion. Those same conditions hampered the BOLOS' anti-missile defenses but the degradation it imposed on the missile's kill probabilities was decisive. Not that there weren't still plenty of them to go around. Over 70 targeted Benji, even as he charged through the raging fires and devastation of the primary strike zone. The Gargantuan Bolo's point defenses stopped most of them short of his battle screen, but 23 reached attack range, and his 15,000-ton hull bucked in heat as the fusion warheads gouged at his battle screen. And drove searing spikes of hellfire directly into his armor. Thor's hammer smashed down again, then again, and again, and again. Even through the concussions and terrifying vibration, Menenka could see entire swaths of his battle board blazing bloody scarlet as damage ripped away weapons and sensors. But then, suddenly to be real, the hammer blows stopped. Ten of the sixteen bolos who had been targeted charged out of the far side of that holocaust, leaving behind all four of the 351st Mark 27s. Two of the battalion's Mark 28s had also been destroyed, and all of the survivors were damaged to greater or lesser extent. But they had destroyed the entire remaining Malconian support squadron and the enemy LZ was just ahead. I have sustained moderate damage to my secondary batteries and forward sensors. Main battery and indirect fire systems operational 87.65% of base capability. Track 3 has been immobilized, but I am still capable of 92.56% normal road speed. Estimate 9.33 minutes to contact with enemy direct fire perimeter weapons at current rate of advance. Request missile release. Missile release ought to have been authorized by Colonel Tukovsky, Maneka thought. But Takovsky's Greg was one of the bolos they'd lost, and Major Frederick's Peggy had suffered major damage to her communication arrays. There was no time to consult anyone else and independent decisions were one of the things BOLO commanders were trained to make. Release granted. Open fire, she snapped. Acknowledged, Benji replied, and the heavily armored hatches of his VLS tube sprang open. His own missiles blasted outward, then streaked away in ground-hugging, supersonic flight. They were shorter ranged and marginally slower than the ones Malconis had hurled at the battalion, but they were also far more agile, and the relatively short launch range and low cruising altitudes gave the defenders less capable reconnaissance drones, even less tracking time, and the battalion had been given against the Malconian missiles. Fireballs raged along the Malconian perimeter, blasting away outer emplacements and dug-in armored units. Weapons and sensor posts, low-key class tank destroyers, and air defense batteries, vanished into the maw of the 39th Battalion's fury. Benji's 30-centimeter rapid-fire mortars joined the attack, Vomiting terminally guided projectiles into the vortex of destruction. Follow-on flights of Balconian missiles shrieked to meet them from the missile batteries to the rear, but the indirect fire weapons had lost virtually all of their observation capability. Their targeting solutions were much more tentative, and the chaos and the explosions hampered the missile's onboard seeker systems and the gaping hole ripping deeper and deeper into their perimeter was costing them both launchers and the sensor capability, which might have been able to sort out the maelstrom of devastation well enough to improve their accuracy. But hidden among the merely mortal Balconian emplacements were their own war machines. The Heimdall's were too light to threaten a bolo. Even the ninth manned vehicles were more than a match for that. But the fists of surgers and Fenrises were something else entirely heavier, Tougher and more dangerous, they outnumbered the battalion survivors by 18 to one, and they had the advantage of prepared positions. Another of the battalion's bolos lurched to a halt, vomiting intolerable heat and light as a plasma bolt punched through its thinner side armor. Benji fired on the move, main turret trekking smoothly, and his entire hull heaved as a main battery shot belched from his helboar and disemboweled the surter, which had just killed his brigade brother. Another searcher died, and Benji's far less powerful infinite repeater shot ion bolt after lethal ion bolt, shrieking across the vanishing gap between the battalion and the Malconian perimeter to rend and destroy the searcher's lighter, weaker companions. Take point, Benji, Mananka barked, as yet another Bolo slew to a halt. Streaming smoke and flame, her eyes dropped to the sidebar, and she felt a stab of grief. As the unblinking letter codes identified the victim as lazy it looked like a mission kill not complete destruction she thought but the damage could have punched deeply into the lazy's personality center and there was no way lieutenant takahashi could have survived and there was no time to mourn them either benji surged forward the apex of a wedge of eight bleeding titans searchers reared up at a deeply dug-in hides lurching around to counter-attack from the flanks and rear as the battalion smashed through the outer perimeter, Hellbor's howling at point blank, continuous fire. In, or into the rear, a corner of Meneka's brain realized, with a sense of triumph that stabbed even through the horror and the terror. A brilliant purple icon blazed abruptly on Benji's tactical plot as his analysis of the Malconian comm suddenly revealed what had to be a major communications note. The CP, Benji, take the CP, Meneka snapped. Acknowledged. Benji replied without hesitation, and he altered his course once more, smashing his way toward the command post. It loomed before him, and as Manenka watched the attack and also spilling up the plot sidebars, she realized what it truly was. Not a command post, but the command post, the central nerve plexus of the entire puppy position. They had found the organizing brain of the Malconian enclave, and she felt sudden flares of hope they could reach that command post, take it out, cripple the enemy's command and control function long enough for the knight to break through the hole they'd torn, then maybe. A pair of searchers, flanked by their attendant mediums, loomed suddenly out of the chaos, hellbores throwing sheets of plasma at the bolos, rampaging through their lines. Benji blew the left flank searcher into incandescent white ruin, while Peggy shouldered up on his right and killed the other. Their infinite repeaters raved as the Fenris' split, trying to circle wide and get at their weaker flank defenses, and the medium Alconian mechs slithered to a halt, spewing fury and hard radiation as their antimatter plants blew. Then a trio of Fenris-class mediums, all of them orphans which had lost their searchers, appeared out of nowhere. Their later weapons bellowed, and they were on the left flank of Captain Harrison Allen. They fired once, twice, and then there were only seven Bolo's left. Benji's port infinite repeater battery shredded Alan's killers, even as two more searchers reared up suddenly before him. One of them fired past him, slamming three Hellbore bolts simultaneously into the peg. The Bolo's battle screen attenuated the bolts, and the anti-plasma armor applique absorbed and deflected much of their power, but the range was too short and the weapons too powerful. One of the newer Bolos, with the improved armor alloys and better internal destructor shielding, might have survived. Peggy and Major Angela Fredericks did not. Benji's turret spun with snake-like speed, and as Hellbor sent a far more powerful bolt straight through the frontal glasses plate of the second surger before it could fire, and swiveled desperately back toward the first Marconian map. Six Menenka had an instant thick. There. there are only six of us now. And then in the same fragmented second, both war machines fired. Hull breach! Benji's voice barked. Hull breach in! There was an instant fleeting stutter in the pulse of eternity that would forever live in Maneka Trevor's nightmares, when her senses recorded everything with intolerable clarity. The terrible, searing flash of light. The simultaneous blast of agony. The flashing blur of movement as Unit 28 g 862 bnj slammed the inner door alloy carapace across his commander's couch. She blinked her remaining eye in syrupy slow motion, her sluggish brain trying to grapple with her wounds. And then a hand touched her left shoulder. She turned back in that direction, eyes squinting, trying to make out the details, and she saw a man in the battle-dress uniform of the Concordiat Marine Corps. A colonel, she thought, then blinked. No, she was wrong again. He wore a colonel's uniform,
1: but the insignia pinned to his collar was that of a brigadier. Are you sure she's going to be all right? She heard the colonel term brigadier say. He was looking at someone else, a man in white. We got to her in time, the man in white said reassuringly. Actually, your people got to her in time and pulled her out while she still had something to work with. It's going to take time and a lot of regen to put her back on her feet but the actual repairs be fairly routine. Extensive, but routine. You have a different definition of routine from me, doctor, the Marine officer said dryly, and then looked back down at Manenka. Are you with us now, lieutenant? He asked,
0: and she recognized the booming thunder from which disturbed her darkness in the quiet question. She looked up at him and tried to speak. Only a croak came out, and she licked dry, cracked lips with a tongue made of leftover leather. A hand reached down, holding a glass with a straw, and Manenka shuddered in raw, sensual pleasure as the unbelievable relief of ice water flowed down her throat. Better? the marine asked, and she nodded. Yes, sir, she got out in a rusky croak. She stopped and cleared her throat hard enough to make her floating head feel real, and then she tried again. Thank you. At least this time, it sounded a little like her, she thought. Her brain was beginning to function once more, although her thoughts remained far from clear. She found herself wondering how she could have possibly not feel the pain of her wounds, then gave a distant sort of mental snort. No doubt they had an entire battalion of pain suppressors focused on her, which probably helped explain the haziness of her mental processes now that she thought about it. As if he had read her thoughts, the man in white reached out, twiddling his fingers on a virtual keyboard. And the woolly blanket slipped back from the front of her brain a faint wash of pain and an echo of something she sensed was vast and terrible but which was not allowed to touch her came with the clarity and she was swallowed again then gave him a tiny nod of thanks no more than that lieutenant the doctor said gruffly you look like someone who's wanting her mind working but you'll have to settle for where you are at the moment yes sir her voice was still rusty And broken sounding in her own ears, but her
1: speech was less slurred and she felt more in control of her brain cells rousing them to action. I'm Colonel Will Brigadier Shalek, Lieutenant Trevor, the Marine said, and she returned her working eye to him. I apologize for disturbing you, but they're going to be shipping you off-world this afternoon, and I wanted to speak with you personally before they do.
0: Off-world? Mananka repeated. Sir, she added hastily, and he gave her a smile. It was a very small smile, shadowed with
1: things that were far from humorous, but it was real. Just for this minute, Lieutenant, don't worry about the military courtesy, he suggested gently. She nodded on her
0: pillow, but in her clearer brain was beginning to function properly. She realized that, impossible as it may seem, they must have won. It was the only way anyone could be
1: talking about sending her off-world, and it was the only way she could still be alive. The reason I wanted to talk to you, Lieutenant was to thank you." The Marine
0: officer continued after a moment. She looked at him, and he twitched one hand, palm
1: uppermost between them. "'That thanks comes from me personally, from the Ninth Marines, what's left of us, and from every living human on Chartres, because without you and your battalion, none of us would be alive today.'" "'The
0: battalion,' Mineka
1: began," and Shalik squeezed her good shoulder again. You broke them, Lieutenant, he said simply. I doubt anyone would have believed it if they hadn't seen it, but you broke them. You tore a hole 10 kilometers wide right through the middle of their line. You took out every searcher they had, and then you smashed their central command post. Apparently, they hadn't had time to yet put up a backup CP, and when you took it out, their command and control went straight to hell, as did they, over space of the next few hours. He smiled again. And this time his smile was harsh and ugly it didn't come cheap he went on after a moment not for any of us i'm the senior ranking officer the ninth has left and the entire division isn't really more than an understrength brigade but there isn't a breathing dog boy left on chartres on your way in the 39th also took out what appears to be their entire surviving fleet strength in system after Commodore Selkirk got done with them and Admiral Quang's relief task force got to us two days ago. We've lost almost 700 million people on Chartres' lieutenant, but almost 2 billion others are alive because of you. All because of us, I suppose, but we couldn't have done any of it without the 39th. Menenka looked at him. A cold, icy fist squeezed her heart. He hadn't
0: said a word about the battalion's casualties, and he would have, unless he knew how much it was going to hurt when he did. She closed her eye for just a moment, wishing with all her heart that she was still unconscious. But she wasn't. And because she wasn't, she had no choice. And the battalion, sir?
1: She heard her voice ask levelly, almost as if it belonged to someone else entirely. And the battalion paid the price, Lieutenant, Shalik said. Meeting her single cobalt blue eye unflinchingly. It wasn't
0: easy for him. She could see that. But he owed her honesty, and he paid her the coin of candor. Then he drew a deep breath. ''You're the only surviving Bolo commander,'' he said with terrible gentleness. She stared at him in disbelief. ''No,'' a small, stern, deep voice within her said, with ruthless clarity. Not disbelief, denial. But even as she thought that, she felt a wild, sudden surge of hope. Shalak had called her the only surviving Bolo commander. And that meant, Benji, sir, Benji, my bolo, how badly is he damaged? Shelik looked at her, still meeting her gaze, and then after a moment shook his head. He didn't make it, Lieutenant, he said softly. His gentle compassion was a dagger of fiery ice buried in her still beating heart. He was wrong. He had to be wrong. She was alive. That meant Benji had to have survived too, or she would have died in his destruction. She should
1: have died in his destruction. Bolo text. tell me one of your bolos may survive. Shelleck went on, with that same gentle voice. Unit 179 or Lima Alpha Zebra. I understand his survival center is still intact. And the hit that took out his command deck, and main personality center, did surprisingly little additional damage. But every other unit of the 39th battalion was destroyed in action. But... but how? Her left hand moved weakly gesturing around her at the hospital room and the medical equipment surrounding her bed, and Shalek shook his head. He got your survival capsule closed and pumped his entire command deck full of fire suppressant, Shalek said. The capsule's emergency automatic kept you alive, and the suppressant had time to set its matrix before. He broke off, and Menenka's eyes squeezed shut in understanding. The fire-suppressing
0: foam used in the Bolo's damage control systems was less effective as it was actually suppressing fires than other technologies might have been. But it was retained because within 20 seconds of deployment, it set up into an artificial alloy almost as tough as the flint steel bolo warhols had been once made of. Yet for all its toughness, it dissolved almost instantly under the touch of the proper nanotech solvent. Benji had used it to save her life as he waded into that horrendous sea of fire, he had encased her in a Dura-alloy capsule, inside was effectively a block of solid armor over three meters across. Oh, Benji, she thought miserably, her broken heart twisting within her. Oh, Benji, how could you have done this to me? How did she broke off and clutched the fingers of her remaining hand in her ivory-knuckled fist? How did it happen? She got out on the second attempt. Aye, the marine started. Then paused and looked at the doctor. I advised against it, the doctor said. She's in bad enough shape as it is, but... It was his turn to break off and look down at Manenka, his mouth tightened. But I've seen this before he went on, his voice harsh, almost angry. Not at her. Manenka realized, even though the crushing iron fist of her grief, but it was something else. They picked them so young, the white-clad men went on. They train them. They give them war gods for friends of those war gods die. Something." He closed his mouth, jaw muscles clenching, then shook himself. Go ahead, Brigadier. Not knowing will only make her tear herself up inside even worse. Shelik gazed at the doctor for several seconds,
1: then nodded and looked back down at Menenka. We got some of our own recon drones. The Ninth's, I mean. In with you when your battalion broke the line, Lieutenant. He said, reaching into the left cargo pocket of his uniform, and withdrew a small portable hollow unit and laid it on the bedside table. This is a recording of the imagery of one of those drones, Lieutenant Trevor. Are you certain you want to see it? Manenka stared up, wanting to scream at him for the stupidity of his compassionate question.
0: There was nothing in the universe she wanted less than to view that imagery, and nothing that could possibly have stopped her. She wanted to find some way to express that. But words were a clumsy, meaningless interface, so she simply nodded. Sherlock's nostrils flared, then he pressed the play button. The hollow came up instantly, crystal clear. Its shapes a light sculpture solid enough to touch, and Minenka felt herself falling into its depths. She saw six brutally damaged bulldoves hammering forward, led by one whose hull bore the remnants of the unit code 862BNJ in half-obliterated letters down one of its scored and seared flanks. From the drone's perspective, she could see the glowing wound of the Surtur hellboard blasted through Benji's armor, the one that had come so close to killing both of them. She could actually see a gray-white scab spilling out of the hole, and some fragment of her brain recognized it as the overflow of the fire suppressant with which he must have packed into the entire web of the internal access spaces. Explosions and energy weapons ripped and tore at them, Missiles screamed in and disintegrated under the pounding and point defense clusters and autocannon, or exploded in savage fury against battle screens that glowed with incandescent fury and the fury of energies they fought to somehow turn aside. Light and medium Melkonian combat mechs charged in to meet them, like packs of jackals, charging wounded grizzlies. Infinite repeaters tore the jackals apart, grinding tracks smashed over their blazing corpses grinding them into the mud, but still they came, and there were scores of them. A handful of searchers reared among them, towering over them like titans, and the thunderbolt slammed back and forth as main battery fire added itself to the seething holocaust. Two of the bolos lurched to a halt, belching smoke and incandescent fury as multiple hellbores blasted through their armor. Searchers exploded as the four survivors smashed back but two more of the Malconian war machines loomed suddenly on the Bolos' flank. The exchange of fire lasted less than ten seconds. When it was done, every searcher was dead, and only Benji remained, still charging forward, all alone now, into the teeth of desperate Malconian fire. Manenka blinked her remaining eye hard. The film of tears defied her efforts, and she scrubbed at them furiously with her left hand, uselessly. Her vision was still blurred and ran. Yet she saw every hideous detail as Benji advanced single-handedly into the very maw of hell. I should have been with him, she thought, and knew it was insane, even as it hammered into her brain. She had been with him. Her own body was inside that staggering, smoking wreck of a bolo as it clawed its way onward. But it wasn't the same thing. She hadn't been with him, hadn't been there for him, on his march to Golgotha. He had been alone abandoned, left without the presence of even a single friend. And yet he never flinched, never hesitated. His entire starboard suspension system had been destroyed, but he blew the tracks and advanced on the bare bogies. A Loki-class tank destroyer popped up out of its hide behind him and lasted long enough to fire before a trio of ion bolts tore it apart. Its screaming plasma bolt smashed through the thinner armor at the rear of Benji's main turret, and the turret shattered, vomiting heat and shattered her Alloy as it was consumed from within. Menenka's hand no longer scrubbed at her eye. It was pressed to her mouth, covering her trembling lips, as she watched Benji still advancing. She knew about Bolo's psychotronic pain sensors. She knew about the agony which had to be shrieking through him. But his surviving weapons remained in action. His infinite repeaters went into continuous maximum fire a ruinous rate which must burn them out in a handful of minutes unless they exploded first, and the lash of their iron bolts blasted a molten path through the enemy still swarming down upon him. They were like locusts, sensing the weakness of his defenses, flinging themselves against him, frantic to stop him before he reached the critical command node, which was the heart and brain of their own defense, the massively defended command post which she had ordered him to attack. Air cavalry mounts raced in, firing rockets and cannon that must have ripped through his wavering battle screen. Light-manned hellwars lacerated his flanks, gouged half molten chasms through his armor. Missiles and artillery's fire exploded around him, and still, he advanced. And then somehow, impossibly, the staggering wreck, which had been her friend, reached his final objective. His hell war was gone and his infinite repeaters were too light to penetrate the ceramiccrete facing the hastily constructed command post. But he still had one weapon. He ground slowly, agonizingly forward, until his 15,000-ton hull crunched over the bunker, smashing and crushing. He lurched to a halt, then unable or unwilling to move further and the surviving infinite repeaters continued to blaze as the Malconians closed in on him from all sides with a fury that would not be denied. He had accomplished his mission. Sanity would have told the Malconians there was no point in continuing to waste combat power against him when they might soon need it to desperately against other foes. But he'd cost them too much, hurt them too badly for them to realize that, and so they swarmed towards him, wasting their strength, and Menenka realized, knew. No, as if she had heard his baritone voice once again that that was the reason he had stopped where he was why he wasn't even attempting maneuver like the Invictuses of the 351st he was deliberately drawing the remaining combat strength down upon himself and away from the marines advancing in the battalion's wake it could not last long that was the only mercy Manenka could think of yet even as she did she knew how eternal those brief screaming minutes of agony and destruction must have been to a person who thought at psychotronic speed. They came from all directions. Lokis, a handful of Fenris's, Heimdall reconnaissance mechs, air cavalry mounts, even Malconian infantrymen, every one of them poured fire into Benji's dying hall. One by one, his remaining weapons were silenced, blown into ruin, while breaches were hammered deeper and deeper into him. Manenka knew she was sobbing aloud, and she couldn't stop. She didn't want to stop, as his hull glowed brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter, with the transfer of energy bleeding into it. And still he fought, with all the incredible toughness of all Bolo kind and the courage of a century-old psychotronic heart. Yet any toughness, any courage, must eventually fall under that onslaught, the Malconian pack swept over him at last. A Loki, one of the last half dozen or less the Malconian still had, had maneuvered into the kill position. Benji's last surviving secondary turret was still firing, still killing targets with flashing precision when the plasma lance ripped into his survival center at last. Menenka could never remember the exact words Sheldach had said after that. They were only sounds, only noise. She knew, he was telling her, the Ninth Marines had only been able to break through because of Benji, that his final stand had drawn the Malconian Reserves, concentrated the majority of the Malconian mobile strength into one spot, where the Marines' light-armored units had taken it from behind, that Benji's death had saved almost two billion human lives. She knew all of that, understood all of that, and yet the words remained deeply only sounds only echoes of something which had no significance against the loss and anguish <laughs> twisting deep into her soul. They left her then, after a time, and Shellyak took the hollow player with him. Perhaps she thought he wanted to prevent her from replaying the record, witnessing Benji's death again and again. But if he did, it was a wasted effort. She needed no hollow player, would never need one. The images were part of her now, burned into her, and she closed her eye as they washed over her once more. With your or on it, carrying it in triumph, or carried upon it in death. That was the ancient admonition Benji had once quoted to her on the day he explained, the unspoken and unwritten compact between Bolos and their human commanders, to face death together, to share it when the time came for them both. But Maneka had come back neither with her shield nor on it, She hadn't met her part of the compact. She knew it was irrational, insane, to blame herself for that. And she knew, as if Benji were parked beside her in bed telling her, that she would just have given anything for his survival. He had just wanted her to survive. And because he had, she would. However much it hurt, she would. She rolled her head on the pillow, blotting her tears. And touched the grief she knew would never leave her again. Oh Benji, she whispered from the sounds of her mind. Oh Benji